Hello, everyone. Before we start the show, we sadly must once again eulogize some creators that have made work that really touched so many of us that have sadly passed away recently. The first person we'll be unfortunately giving a memoriam to is composer Michiaki Watanabe, who passed away on June 23rd due to heart failure. He lived a full life to the age of 96, but it's still a sad thing to hear of his passing. Watanabe's compositions, his music, have been scoring just so many mecha and tokusatsu and sentai shows. He composed the iconic theme of Monsengu Z. He scored the first six Super Sentai series, the first two Hikaider series, God in Her, Get a Robo Go, a lot of the sound, the music of Mecha and Tokusatsu of the 70s, 80s era, you know, were really defined by him. And it is a sad thing to hear of his passing, but it also really, really just shook us to the core to hear of the passing of another really beloved creator and especially personally beloved for ourselves here on the podcast and I think just so many of us who grew up and became fans of anime and manga in the late 90s early 2000s because the series that they created was just so formative to us and it is with much sadness that we must report that Kazuki Takahashi creator of Yu-Gi-Oh! was unfortunately found dead off the coast of Nagasaki, Okinawa. Presumably, uh, he was found equipped with snorkeling gear and equipment. So presumably, he passed away in a diving or snorkeling accident. And he was found on Wednesday, July 6th, and has passed away at the age of 60 years old. Far, far too young, and just far out of just left field and just that a shocking just sudden accident has taken away a creator that really has influenced and motivated and brought together people and fans worldwide through his work through Yu-Gi-Oh the series he created and Kazuki Takashi's story as a artist creator is just so remarkable because he started his career in the 80s you know but it took him over 15 years to really get a big hit you know he was in his late 30s like 38 when Yu-Gi-Oh started but you know when he got that hit he created a phenomenon he created something that became a true culture a true community that united people which is just so apt pointed because in Yu-Gi-Oh what Takashi wanted to explore was the relationships between people how they interact with each other how they affect and influence one another and the medium that he found the perfect way to explore that was through games playing games with one another learning about each other through you know playing games and how incredible it is that he, through his manga, and then through the game of Yu-Gi-Oh! that was created from the manga, has not only been successful in exploring that, but has managed to bring together so many people united in their love of the franchise and the great game and the iconography and the series that he created. And, you know, there's just been such an amazing outpouring of love for Takahashi in the wake of his passing. So many people 
that, you know, personally and ourselves included, you know, sharing what the series have meant to us and our memories of it and just how it deeply touched their lives. And Takashi has been eulogized by his peers in the industry as well. And the people who have come to work on his work uh, through the anime, like George Murakawa, who is a longtime friend of his, he reflected on his memories of working with Takahashi, being peers of Takahashi, talking about him, about like working on Yu-Gi-Oh! and Hajimonipo at the same time, and Takahashi calling him for advice and stories like that. And, you know, both the Japanese and English voice actors of Kaiba have both respectively posted tributes and memories of him. A lot of people have just been just sharing their sadness about like, wow, Yu-Gi-Oh! really touched their lives in a profound way and it's been part of their lives in a profound way for so many years. And truly, Yu-Gi-Oh! is just one of the titan cornerstone gateway anime for our generation as anime fans. You know, people again going up in early, late 90s to early 2000s. Like, it was one of the big gateway series that really brought people into this niche and this fandom. And through that, you know, created so many friendships and really steered the direction of so many lives in a profound way. And I think that legacy that Takashi left behind is just truly remarkable. As the work itself, you know, we discussed the Yu-Gi-Oh! manga at length in our podcast about it. We discussed just artistically and just as entertainment how good it is, but also how thoughtful it is that a lot of people don't consider. And a lot of people have been sharing a lot of those thoughtful messages in the manga from his author's comments reflecting on the state of the world and exploring his pacifistic messages, his messages of, you know, anti-war and anti-violence. You know, he was very staunchly politically progressive. And so that had carried over in his work and continued to carry over after his career where he would, in recent years, you know, draw, you know, illustrations to encourage people to vote, very critical of the LDP, you know. So he was always like a staunch believer in Rather than focusing on the conflicts between people, finding ways to empathize with them and connect them together. And he really found just kind of like a perfect, again, medium for that through games in Yu-Gi-Oh! And really explore that team just so beautifully in that. And I think that will be one of the many, many reasons that the series and the legacy is left behind will continue to inspire generations of fans for a millennium. Just that optimistic message and just that message that, you know, the bonds between people, you know, run deep and they are just more precious than anything. And, you know, the finale of Yu-Gi-Oh!, like the final arc of it is all about, and the final battle of it especially, is all about kind of reconciling, and it's that thing, lost and, you know, parting ways with someone precious to you. And, you know, I've really think back to the final, you know, messages in Yu-Gi-Oh! as Atem is parting ways with the group and everyone. Just so mournful of him leaving. And then Junuchi just, you know, consoling Anzu is like, 
you know, you don't have to understand why this is happening, you know, there's no necessarily great reason for these things to happen, but you need to accept it and hold those memories of him close to you, burn them into your heart. And as we mourn Takashi, I think that is one thing that as fans, as people who have been just greatly influenced by his work will all do, like the memories that we have of Yu-Gi-Oh, the friendships we've created through a love of the series, the bonds we've made, how it's influenced us, those things, you know, we'll carry with us for the rest of our lives. They are burned into us and... We are just so deeply grateful for Takahashi for, you know, sharing his passions and what he loves with us and in turn inspiring that in us and creating just a whole new world and a whole new way to connect with people in our lives through our love of this series. And there's just so much more we could probably say, but go on and on eulogizing and just reflecting on our memories of Yu-Gi-Oh! But oh, we could. You know, they'll always hold the heart of the cards in our hearts. And I know that concept maybe not necessarily is in the original manga, but, you know, as something inspired by the franchise is a, a phrase that I think that all of us in the English speaking sphere carry with us. But yeah, we all have on our hands the smiley face that Hansu drew for the group. You know, all millions of us fans, you know, can come together with that big smiley face drawn on us. That's like the invisible bond we all share as fans of the series. Would you like to say a few words? I mean, Colton, I know that, you know, Yu-Gi-Oh! and Takashi has meant a lot to you. Oh, for sure. Um, Man, I mean, it's, I'm still, hmm, like, very rarely do, like, celebrity deaths really, like, affect me this much, but, like, I don't know. I mean, when I first heard the news of his passing, like, I mean, unfortunately, that was like the first thing I like woke up to that morning. And it was possibly some of the worst news I could have ever woken up to. And I just, it's hard for me to like put my feelings in the words. Obviously, Yu-Gi-Oh! is like so important to me. And unfortunately, I don't think I really, I don't think I really realized that until I realized that Takahashi was gone, which is unfortunate. Like, it, it kind of took me a bit to realize, like, wow, Yu-Gi-Oh! for me is, like, just as important as, like, Dragon Ball, you know? Like, it's something that's just kind of been a part of my life for most of my lifetime, you know? So, you know, whether whether it be, you know, playing the card game, watching the anime on Saturday mornings, any chance I could get, you know, seeing Dark Side of Dimension in theaters, that's one of the best experiences I ever had in the theater. Same here. I'll never forget the guy when Kaiba was, when Yugi was telling Kaiba, no, like the Pharaoh isn't here anymore. See, you know, here's the puzzle. Like I can't summon him. And Kaiba's like, you lie. And one dude in the audience was like, what is this dude's problem? <laughs> yeah, Just such an animated theater. You know, that was a great example of just the shared passion people have for you because that was a full crowded theater i saw dark side of dimensions in, in nyc and it was just so animated just so much active cheering and commentary from the audience just everyone was having such a good time and that story also is such a poignant epilogue again of like kaiba can't let go of the fact that the pharaoh is gone and yugi you know he's still mourning a little bit but he also comes to just finally make peace with it <laughs> you know it's just such a really thoughtful conflict in that movie you know that's also just an extension of the reflections Takashi was boring towards the end of the manga for sure 
I, I mean, honestly, like, like what you were talking about with kind of the final themes of Yu-Gi-Oh being explored in terms of like accepting loss and everything. Like, I think the thing that makes me like the saddest, but also is sort of comforting is that like, you know, with Takahashi gone, you know, the series is still kind of like a source of comfort for a lot of people in that way. But also at the same time, like when I think about the ending of the manga in particular, like it just takes on a whole new like profound meaning, like it just becomes that much sadder, unfortunately. But, you know, at the same time, in a way, it can sort of help you, again, guide you through that process of like grief and loss in a way, I think. Um, I don't know, like it's one of the few things where like every time I would like get on Twitter and see like just the amount of people that are online just like thanking Takahashi for his work and like saying nice things about him and his work. And it's it's legitimately made me tear up a few times. Like it's actually really profoundly hurt me and so many other people like I feel I feel like and again, not to diminish the passing of other people. But I do think that like in terms of like how much of an effect he's had on, you know, the greater anime manga community, and even outside of that community, I think this has hurt people on the level of like Kintaro Miura. Like mm-hmm. this, like I, I feel like we're seeing the same level of like the amount of people coming out and like sharing their stories about, you know, these people's work and like how it's really greatly, profoundly like affected them. And I know for, for me specifically, like again, like many people, Yu-Gi-Oh was a part of my life for so long and still is to an extent that it just, it hurts and it's going to hurt for a while, but you know, um, I'll always have Yu-Gi-Oh to kind of have on in the background. I, like, li- like literally yesterday, I was going through my old cards and being like, oh, I kind of want to like make a deck again. <laughs> you know, like it's really kind of like restarted my love for Yu-Gi-Oh all over again. A- again, as unfortunate as, as it is to say, again, it's one of those things where it's like you really don't know what you have until it's gone. So mm-hmm. like, like I, I can't I cannot like express in words like just how much I love this series. And yeah. Yeah, no, but. Again, I feel that you know, it's just tragic that he passed away in just an abrupt accident like this. But at the same time, as much as we mourn his loss, you know, I do think there's comfort to be found in like the memories and relationships that have been created from Yu-Gi-Oh! And that's something, you know, to really be thankful of him for. And to pay our respects to him for. And I think that, you know, again, his memory and his legacy will be carried on through his fans and his work for a long, long time to come. Again, a millennium to come. He's just that impactful and influential. Rest in peace, King. We miss you.
This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast, episode 207. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lum Ramiyasha. And today we are once again throwing a riot. We are gathering a bunch of awesome folks together to revisit Keito Gaku's Boys Run the Riot in a full series retrospective podcast. And we have brought back not only translator Leo McDonough, but we've also brought on the editor of the series, TJ Ferentini, and the letterer, Ashley. Caswell. We have the full localization team, the core localization team join us to discuss their work on the series, what they resonate with it, and what we really find so cool and so awesome and resonant about it. And it was just a lot of fun to chat with them about their thoughts on the series and, you know, explore how the character arcs grow how we relate with it personal experiences, you know, compare it with the one-shot Keitogaku drew and how, like, the series kind of was expanded on from that one-shot. And, yeah, it was just a great discussion and just a really, really great exploration of just a truly fantastic exploration, a series that explores identity and really just the struggle of staying true and being honest about yourself to yourself and the world around you and being like unafraid and proud to put yourself out there. And I think it's just such a great message and a great series. And I really enjoyed revisiting it again. Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, I enjoyed reading it kind of for the first time on my end. So yeah, this was a really good discussion. I really love it when we have the opportunity to like to have these episodes where we have the pleasure of having on just an entire localization team. Like I think I think those are some of our best episodes, quite honestly, like we did it with Kaiju number eight. And now this like, it's always really cool when we when we can do something like that. Absolutely. Those are some the most fun podcasts to do when we can get like kind of the core localization together to talk about the work. And we hope to do that even more so in the future. And in fact, you'll probably hear this month another podcast with the localization team of another queer manga work that, you know, also explores very similar themes that I really enjoyed Ooh. and really thought the discussion just came out so awesomely on. So look forward to that. But yeah, we will get into Boys Run the Riot in a little bit. Uh, before that, though, I'll just briefly mention that I have been given like a really wonderful opportunity to appear at San Diego Comic Con this year on the Best and Worst Manga panel as a panelist. Ooh. So if you are in San Diego, you're going to SDCC this year, definitely stop by. And, uh, you know, if you enjoy the show, you know, I'd love to hear from you and chat with you. And I hope you enjoy the panel. I've been giving my picks a lot of thought. And, you know, I hope that uh, people will enjoy uh, my choices. But yeah, so it'll happen on Friday, July 22nd, 6 p.m. in room four in the convention center. So definitely uh, check that out if you're going to be going to CCC this year. Yeah, I'm really happy for you. That sounds like it's going to be really fun. Um, Obviously, that makes two of us now that have been on the panel. Yeah, we've both been on it, which is really awesome. You know, we were both 
really hidden kind of the big time. It's just still kind of amazing to me to be on a panel with just like a lot of these amazing people who have been doing such great work in the space with their writing and editorials and you know this year also like with their videos uh, so it's really incredible company to be in and yeah it's just a cool honor so very, very exciting for sure like Lum said if you're if you're going to be at the convention definitely go check the panel out I 100% guarantee that uh, it'll be very fun and worthwhile. So go and do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But I think that's about it for anything we want to talk about at the top of the show, Lum, if we just want to get into our discussion. Yeah, I think I am game to talk about how we have no shame. And so let's start this riot as we head into another awesome discussion of Boys Run the Riot. They say clothes make demand, and no manga better encapsulates that idea than Boys Run the Riot. We had a ton of fun covering the series last year, talking about the first volume and exploring in its story how its protagonist was able to express his identity through the clothes he wears and through the art he makes. It was really compelling, and we definitely wanted to revisit it, and now we have gathered our own gang to run the riot, run the gamut, talking about this wonderful, wonderful series. We have assembled the localization team for Boys from the Riot to talk about it here with us today. Once again, bringing back onto the show, Leo McDonough, translator for Boys from the Riot, and I think our son is gay. We have welcoming to the show for the first time, we're very excited to have TJ Ferentini, editor at Kadansha, Penguin Random House, and editor Boys from the Riot, Summer of Love, Shaman King, and Ashley Caswell, who lettered the series and is an associate designer at Macmillan and a freelance illustrator comic artist. Thank you guys so much for joining us to revisit and talk about the series. Thank you for having us and having me again. Thank you so much. It's really exciting to be here. Thank you. (laughs) No, it's our pleasure. 
Yeah, I mean, we enjoyed Boys Run the Riot so much, you know, the first volume when we had um, Leo on, which uh, for, for those who haven't listened to that uh, episode where we interviewed Leo, you should really listen to that episode. I thought it was a great discussion. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And I, again, we were just so impressed with the localization of the series and the labor of love it clearly was and the effort you guys really made to really promote the book, get it out there. I really appreciated TJ, the video you guys did interviewing you about like the book and just talking about like teams and topics in it, like messages from Keito Gaku you guys collaborating with him to make new covers for the English editions of the series and really all the efforts you guys have done to like just champion the book as it was coming out last year and I really enjoy reading it. It was one of my favorite new releases of last year. And so I was just very, very enthralled by it. And so I'm so excited to talk to you guys about it, about your work on the series and your thoughts on the series here today. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm I'm still in awe at everything that was able to come together for this series. And, you know, as you mentioned, I like one thing that I was just hoping that, you know, that passion, the fact that we really wanted to make sure that, you know, we were conveying that this is a book by a trans man about, you know, a transgender young high school student. And then, you know, have that also reflected in the localization team. I was just really hoping that, you know, that would be palpable to the readers. Um, So that's really exciting to hear you say that. Thank you. (laughs) No, absolutely. And that's just such an important thing. And actually, they want to ask, I mean, can you go even more into the background of how, how we were able to put the team together? Yeah, sure. So every now and then, uh, editors have the opportunity to like pitch their own series that we think, you know, Kodansha should consider licensing. And the great thing about Boys Run the Riot is that I wasn't the only one who was passionate about this series. There were several other members on my team who also enjoyed it, and Kodansha had their eye on it. But uh, as I've mentioned, I had been following Keito Gaku ever since I had read Light, which is short story that he created before Boys Are in the Riot. So when this series came out, I'm like, oh, oh man, I can't wait. Um, So, you know, just from the get-go, I was like, yeah, if we get this, you know, this, we need to go all out. So I had, I had asked, I'm like, hey, you know, can I really cherry pick and make sure that, you know, if we do this, we do this right. And that, you know, we make sure that we have a all trans localization team. And thankfully, my colleagues were supportive and I kind of got (laughs) to... gotta work with that and run with it which kind of also morphed into the like the whole idea with the cover design thing because it was just a like a comment that I made like oh it would be cool if we could do that and they're like do you want to ask do you want to see if (laughs) that's something that Kitogaku could do and I'm like so normally we really try to replicate the Japanese cover as closely as possible you know we try to make sure that like you know all the artwork is preserved the same all the colors you know match exactly as the Japanese edition does but with boys from the riot while the cover illustrations were really gorgeous. One thing that we really wanted to make sure is that as soon as someone picks up this book, they know that it's about fashion and they know that it has a transgender main character. So the Japanese cover art doesn't necessarily immediately make you think about that. Um, So for example, the first uh, Japanese cover illustration has Ryo in his school uniform holding up a can of like spray paint, which is great, but you can't tell, is it about graffiti art? You know, that really that the fact that it's about a main character who's trans, the fact that it's about fashion, that's not, you know, immediately recognizable from the illustration. And the really cool thing is like uh, Keito Gaku had done this gorgeous color illustration when the first 
first chapter had originally ran in its magazine. And I thought that that really captured all of those aspects of it because it's like the split image of Dio in his street clothes. Also in his uniform, you see Jin in the background too. And you also see like the graffiti art. So it kind of checked off all of those amazing elements. So I was like, wow, it would be really cool if you know, we could ask if we could get original illustrations for our versions done in the same vein as this illustration. So that's how, you know, we came to use that as our volume one cover image. And then we collaborated with uh, manga author Kito Gaku to do um, the other three illustrations for our edition and he was on board he thought it was a great idea um, and they were like can you give us a sketch like what you're thinking and I'm like what so um my my background with art is i could draw really awesome stick figures so that is what i did um so i did that i was like you know just kind of like writing notes in japanese like thinking i'm like oh maybe it could be a split image like this um and then thinking who ryo could stand alongside so mizuki for volume two subasa for volume three and so that that's how that came to be. And, you know, luckily, like I said, he was really interested in it. He thought it was great. And then he sent sketch images and he's like, hey, let me know if you think this is good or if you want to go in a different direction. And I'm like, no, this is exactly like <laughs> what we were thinking of. Um so it was really, I, I personally haven't had that collaborative process with an author before. Um, so it was really exciting that, you know, we were not only able to do it for this book, but that it was also such like a smooth, fun experience. And then, you know, we, we got to do a bunch of other things. Like we got permission to include the sketch images and the volumes as well. For volume one, we really got to do, um, you know, that extra interview with Gaku Sensei as well. So it's really great that I think that we were also able to go the extra mile to really get fans the opportunity to, I guess, like, quote unquote, like meet him and like hear from him as well. No, I think that makes the release very special to have these personalized covers for the English market. And also that interview was so great to get more of a personal insight into Gaku's top prices in writing the manga, what he wanted to communicate to his audience through the manga. And in reflecting on that interview, like throughout the entire story, I could totally see all the stuff he mentions in here in terms of how he feels about these different things that he wanted to express I totally see them in reading the entirety of the manga and different points of the story and so I thought that was just so valuable and so cool and it just sounds like a really fun process you had collaborating with him and I remember seeing I believe they showed your sketches on the video you guys <laughs> did <laughs> yeah I remember the guys were reacting oh cute <laughs> yeah, I, I still have them. Um, yeah, I mean, those those sketches are definitely not going to be on the cover of any manga volume. But <laughs> just I, they're so dear to me, because I'm just so happy what what came out of them that we were able to have this incredibly like, unique back and forth in this dialogue, this collaborative process, uh, which I'm so incredibly thankful for. You, you know, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I was actually trying to flip through my volumes and see like, oh, are, are there sketches in here? I should, I should probably check that out. <laughs> Well, the video is still up and out there. I, I didn't think that far to put them in there, but I could certainly send them to you if you want to get a better look at them. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> That's wonderful. So, yeah, it's just great that you were given, like, the freedom to put a really great team together. And I guess that leads to my question, like, how you uh, found and recruited Leo and Ashley to come onto the project. Yeah, Um. so this is... I guess gonna sound like a little ridiculous, but hear me out. Um, I actually I use Twitter to 
network and meet a lot of other folks in the localization industry, like a lot. I'm very thankful that, you know, I can use Twitter as that kind of platform. And Leo, please feel free to, to jump in and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe we started kind of becoming mutuals and following each other due to our mutual love of Shimanai Tasogare when that yes, yeah. release came out. And I remember Leo had like a pinned tweet that was like, hey, I'm Leo. I translate. These would be my dream projects. And he, <laughs> he had Boys Run the Riot on there. And I'm like in the back of my head, I'm like, okay, noting that. Um, <laughs> and so so that's how I had the, the opportunity to meet Leo. And then, you know, as I mentioned, I really wanted to make sure that I could cherry pick who was working on this. And I wanted to make sure that I had a trans letter as well. Um, so I kind of put out a call for that. And that's how I had the opportunity to connect and meet Ashley, which was really great. Yeah, that's wonderful. I mean, just just shows the power of social media as a tool to connect people. And also just the value of putting yourself out there and what you want to do. And never know what that will lead you. Yeah, Twitter is super good for that. And also, I just want to praise TJ for like how... He really seems to have this finger on the pulse of like the manga industry and translation industry and stuff like that. So I'm really glad that he found me. Oh gosh, thank you, thank you. That that means so much coming from you. <laughs> this was actually the first manga series I lettered, and I found out about the opportunity through Twitter after having heard the series was going to get localized a few months before, and it was really amazing to be given a shot at something that was a bit new to me. Wonderful. So, so what we're saying is Twitter is actually good for something. Yeah, every now and then, <laughs> it's a great tool to connect people for sure. But yeah, I mean, Ashley, I wanted to ask because I did see, I did think that oh, this was your first a manga lettering project, but you, of course, have a background in comics uh, yourself. I was really curious of like, you know, how you brought your experiences with comics into lettering the book. Um, Yeah, so I think it was easier and also trickier than I expected to letter a manga. Like there were a lot of basic tools I have been very familiar with just designing books for about four or five years now. Time is weird. Um, So, you know, I was familiar with InDesign to say the least. And I've been making and lettering my own comics since I was around nine years old. But I think localizing was really interesting to figure out just because, you know, the size of word bubbles is not always catered to English text, which it doesn't really need to be, and figuring out ways to fit the text that don't look clunky, but also, you know, match what the book is trying to say was really fun and interesting. Just like figuring out ways to adapt a book to an English audience is a really interesting process, especially looking at Leo's translation notes throughout the scripts was really fascinating and kind of got me into starting to try to learn Japanese a little bit because just made me more interested in the language in general. Oh, wow. That's very flattering. I, I like really curious like how the way that I wrote the script if that if like anything was challenging for you or like you felt like the like length of what I'd written was like annoying or something. No, no, it was all really concise. I think there were just some points where there would be a word in Japanese that would just clearly be much shorter in English. Um, it was like things like that where I was like, that's inevitable. Yeah. And it was interesting problem solving. And I think um, figuring out how to localize the sound effects especially was really, really fun. Yeah. Um, just like making sure it matched the energy and was readable without um, for this edition, we didn't cover up the Japanese sound effects. We would add them to the side and just making sure they fit and were distinguished but readable was really fun honestly yeah I, I believe that i think we ran like a pre like a short preview of boys run the riot or we definitely started localization work on it a lot early because we wanted to make sure um you know we had the first chapter up as a preview uh for trans day of visibility that we had it you know up on netgalley so folks could read it ahead of time and i just remember seeing it all come together uh i mean first like Ashley, your sound effects. I was just like, 
I don't know how they did that, but that is amazing. <laughs> oh, and I was like, oh my gosh. I'm like, look at this, look how cool these are. But I feel like, you know, sometimes too, like when I when I'm reading a manga in Japanese, I'm already thinking like, okay, if I could localize it, who could I see translating it? Who could I see like lettering it? And I feel like just the end product of this. I really feel like I'm I'm seeing like the English version of the Japanese edition. Like I feel like even the way you approach the lettering just really kind of reflects it visually so well. Um, and it was just so exciting seeing all those moving working parts come together. Thank you so much. I'm glad that it worked out well. <laughs> you know, it's hard <laughs> to say when you do something for the first time, if it will kind of like honor what you're trying to do. So I'm glad it seems like it did. Yeah, for sure. Totally. I think the lettering just fits so well with the art and it really sounds like it was a cool like a uh, challenge or a cool change of pace to like you know with your own comics you had more control over like the shape of the balloons and fitting your text into them but if now you're working with you know someone else's already pre-established layout and trying to adapt the script to that and that sounds like a, a really cool challenge to get accustomed to but I also I, you know just really appreciated like a lot of the details in the book in terms of like things you lettered like not just you know the text in the word balloons but also you know text on signs text in notepads and papers like one particular instance that made me stop and think about it was in volume four when everyone is like coming up with their own like concepts of like what they think their brand should express and you have three papers where everyone is like outlined what you know they think the, the brand ito should be and of course the paper are outlined in kind of like different perspectives, different places. And so just thinking about the fact that you would have to letter that in perspective, <laughs> and then you also have to keep that consistent because you see those pages uh, at another configuration on the next page. And so you also have to make sure that the appearance of the words, like it matches in consistency from this one panel where the, you see it much smaller to the next, where you see it much bigger. Uh, like I was very impressed by that. That was a moment that really stood out to me. I'm so glad um, when I was first looking through the art for that um, I <laughs> felt a little bit of dread when I saw that moment and was just like oh I'm gonna have to make sure I do that right <laughs> I'm glad it came together well um, I'm sorry, which pages are these again? This is in volume four, it's in the middle of the volume, it's after like Joe gives them the kind of mission like hey you figure out like what your kind of like brand ethos is going to be like what you want your brand to like communicate and so they all think about it for a little bit and then they like come back together and with their concept ideas and so this is like pages 107 and 108 in volume four. Oh, uh, okay okay the one difficult thing with manga you can't tell what page numbers are are which sometimes True. a lot of pages don't have the numbers on it <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah um no okay yeah I, I i can see how that would be difficult difficult to like make consistent yeah you did a really good job on that thank you and i think um if my research i was trying to make look back at just any previous instances where characters would have written just to make sure i had it look the same um mm -hmm. hopefully right. that stayed consistent but it was a thing to keep in mind too just since this was a not one shot volume <laughs> No, that's totally another consideration. It's like, if you have seen these characters' handwriting before, you're going to want to make their style of handwriting consistent in one instance to the next. So that's another like extra detail touch that I really appreciate. And of course, I really liked your font choice for the graffiti. Uh, I believe that is you're right. The R brand begins today. Yeah, that was me. It's because um, there are some, I think all of the t-shirts were already in English, so I didn't adapt those. But the graffiti was very much a thing I adapted. And that was actually 
really, really fun just making sure that I was able to do something that appeared in a live font so that if there were any changes after my work was done, it could be fairly editable, but also making sure it had some sort of effect that looks like it was spray painted was a really fun challenge. And I'm just glad that I've Photoshop experience to make that happen. (laughs) Wow, could you go into like how you were able to achieve that effect? Yeah, I think um, I am trying to remember because this was it's hard to say how long ago I actually lettered the first volume. It was when did that happen? Um. Anyway, I, I think that was 2020. Oh gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like it was either six months or a year and a half ago. It's hard to say. Um. But basically, I found a font that had a sort of brushy script approach. Took that. Um, I may have rasterized it at that point, which means that you can't really adjust the type, but you know, I had it visible, like a layer in the file so that it could be used if needed. At that point, I added a lot of different effects to it where I warped it to make sure it matched the perspective of the wall it was on. Um, and actually to start all that off, I had to, um, I think the most annoying, quote unquote, annoying part of it was, um, removing the Japanese text initially, which can be tricky with halftones just to make sure it looks consistent, doesn't look glitchy and strange, just to give it kind of like a blank canvas. And then, yeah, I took the script font, warped it to match the perspective. And then I started adding different effects to it, like adding noise to make it look a bit blurry, adding random textures throughout it just to give it more of a spray painting feel. Yeah, it's a bit tough to kind of describe. It was just kind of a lot of things at once and then seeing what looked most natural while also, you know, doing all these different things to it was a fun but tricky balance to achieve. I mean, would you say that was like your most, uh, I guess, challenging part of lettering the series or? I would say so. I think, um, (laughs) especially since they keep referring back to it later on in the book, um, making sure that it looked consistent and readable (laughs) in different like little shots of it was um, tricky, but also really, really fun. It was a good way to just be like, okay, let's really make sure we nail this so that we don't have to make any other edits to it that have to appear later on in the book. No, it's an important moment to nail. And yeah, just thinking about the fact that you have to redraw over the shadow of the ladder in the scene too. I just remembered that now. And <laughs> that's probably why I said the word annoying first. No, it seems like a very difficult retouch. But I also appreciate the details of like the little graffiti splatters, you know, the little splatter effects around the words too. And you know, it really does get across that this is like graffiti when you have all those little paint splatters around the text as well. Yeah, yeah. I think those little touches just kind of helped make it look more natural. For sure. And I think it just truly a testament to like the quality of your work because I feel like so many people just underestimate the effort and care gone into like translation and lettering. And I feel like, you know, it's so easy to see the finished project and think like, oh, wow, that like this looks like magic and it's anything but <laughs> magic. It's There's all of these elements in it and just you, you make it look effortless. Um, Thank and you. Now I was just flipping through the through volume one and I'm like, I am so sorry because you see that graffiti come up in the background. Like, <laughs> yeah. so From pages 133 to 135, you're seeing it on every page and you have characters blocking the text in many of the I cannot believe they didn't consider my feelings when making the initial release. (laughs) (laughs) The selfishness. 
but it oh, was yeah. I think like this just as a first go for lettering it really made me realize like oh the goal for lettering is to be kind of invisible like you don't want to have it be obvious that it took a lot of work in a way which was just it's a thing I knew from just my experience as a book designer in general but just seeing it through this context was really interesting for sure I mean for the casual you want to feel like oh the book I, even though you have it awareness oh this is a book originally published in Japanese in Japan you want the reader to just be completely immersed in their reading experience and not even be thinking about the fact they're reading a localized comic and so yeah like all of the effort you put in to the sound effects into the lettering in this really just came across so natural to the point that I think a lot of readers would not consciously be thinking about oh like this graffiti or these signs these were all re-lettered in English, but they feel just so much a part of the original art and so in tune with the artist style. Thank you. No, I'm glad that it came through well. I also want to just give a quick thank you to Sarah Lindsay, a wonderful manga letter who just has a lot of great fonts and resources for people starting out and or with experience in lettering manga in general. I used a good amount of Sarah's fonts through the sound effects and other random bits that were just a blast to work with and work really well with manga lettering in general. So thank you to Sarah. Yeah, shout out to Sarah. She's awesome. Ah, uh, yes, the god of lettering themselves. <laughs> the queen of letters, for sure. That's awesome. So, I mean, are there any other like particular sound effects or moments in the book where you letter that you want to really spotlight as well? I think one thing that I was doing a bit more at the beginning of the series, whenever Rio was having a moment of just kind of like insecurity or nervousness when he was talking to somebody in a way where he was trying to just sort of hide how he was feeling or just be a little more defensive than he would normally be if he was feeling, feeling comfortable, I would kind of go with a different type approach that um, I think I in the um, like little character styles I had in InDesign, I would call it like dialogue nervous. Um, <laughs> just to kind of elevate the like, oh, I don't know, actually, it's fine type of emotion that can happen when you're just trying to be normal in a setting where you're just automatically not seen as normal. Oh, was one of those scenes or those instances like the penis in your heart scene? <laughs> Possibly. My favorite I mean, line. <laughs> It, that is very possible. I actually I can't remember for sure, but I should have if I didn't. Um, I think it was a thing I would do in the first chapter, at least when um, all of Rio's classmates were talking about like, oh, what girl do you like? What boy do you like? And Rio accidentally let slip like, oh, I like this girl, forgetting that that's like a weird thing to his classmates to say. And just the sort of rolling back that he does where he's like, no, I thought I just meant like for other girls, I like this character, <laughs> but <laughs> for the, for the guys, this boy is so cute. Um, just like the sort of masking who you are to seem more regular type of deal, but also kind of flubbing it was really fun to just put into type and pick a font for. No, I totally see the contrast between Rio's response in this scene and the text font with like the normal dialogue font. And yeah, it really stands out. It gives that wobbliness, that sense of like unsureness and kind of anxiety. Yeah. A cool thing about Rio's character development in the series is I used it way less later on because yeah. he had less of those moments. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As he got more confident, more proud and sure of himself. Now I want someone to just make a font called Trans Panic. That's like when characters <laughs> are freaking out. <laughs> I should have called it that. Oh, no. That's great. 
So is that the same font you use? Because um, I was looking at the page where Jin is about to like tell them like what they're up to, like with their fashion brand and Rio kind of like steps in like, oh, no, we're just we, we just like walk the same way home or whatever. Like it's nothing important. Oh, yeah, I think so. OK, because I was kind of looking side by side and I couldn't tell if that was like the same font you used or not. I'm trying to find it because I cannot remember <laughs> myself. Um, I will say yes, but it's possible. Oh, yeah. Yep, I do. It's true. I found it. Okay. <laughs> nice. It's really cool to pick up on details like that. It was just like a fun thing to sneak in. Yeah, because um, from my own experiences being someone in high school who did not necessarily fit in gender wise, <laughs> um, it was a feeling I really related to. And I was like, I think I can find the font for this. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're just perfect font to represent anxiety. Of a queer person, like, <laughs> in stressful scenarios. I am being regular. It is fine. Mm. See, I appreciate that detail, because I, I that's the kind of detail you can only get from having, like, like an all-trans team. True, yeah, that's a, that's a thing I didn't really consider. <laughs> yeah, just a thought put into, like, how to best communicate the emotion of this character coming from, like, a place of empathy and experience, for sure. I see that in just all aspects of how the book has been approached. From your letting to Leo's translation. And Leo, like we talked a lot last uh, time about some of the choices in Volume 1, like some of the parts where you had to work around something that makes sense in Japanese, that you had to kind of communicate the same intent in English, like referring back to the, you know, scene where Rio accidentally exposes his taste in girls and he's like oh well uh, you know if i had to choose a, a girl like me originally in the original uh he like uses or a uses like a male pronoun and that's what he's trying to cover up and so like i was also trying to be conscious of like a lot of that in reading the rest of the series of like oh what were other moments where you really had to kind of like adapt the series in your translation to communicate the same intent. I was wondering like more of like your thoughts, like more of like, what were some other instances uh, in the remainder of the series? Uh, also touching upon Molly for things that we may not have talked about last time that you found challenging to translate and communicate in English. Yeah, um, I think you can see a lot of my struggles in the translation notes at the end of every book. But um yeah, it was kind of interesting to see the final product because there were some times where I'd written like comments in the script saying like, you could say it this way or this way. Like, I think TJ made the call on some of those things. But um, I think two of the things that come to mind that I struggled quite a lot with was um, how to refer to Tsubasa because a lot of the time in the Japanese doesn't use any pronouns or anything to refer to them. So um, yeah, there are a lot of times where I had to think about how other characters would refer to them if they were talking in English because maybe they would think so I kind of had to assume what certain characters were thinking, like, for example, Ryo's classmates, what they would think of the YouTuber wing, like how they would refer to them. And then um, another thing was um, in the final volume um, in Ryo's scene where he's kind of like coming out and he uses ore for himself, which obviously you can't do in English. So um, I think we made a good work around to that. Yeah, just things like that. It's mainly to do with pronouns, I think. No, totally. And, you know, Japanese, like, terms in terms of referring to people, like, you know, referring to Sabasa as an one, and then having discussion of, like, you know, ex-gender, like, what identity they refer to themselves as, especially since Sabasa is gender fluid, and, like, they have, like, different ways of, like, thinking about themselves, and then also how people think about them throughout the story. Because in one instance, he'll say, like, oh, I am a guy who likes guys, like, when he's talking to Ryo. But in other instances, 
they're like telling Kashiwabara, like, hey, I told you not to call me dude uh, when we're on stream. So like, you know, how they view their own gender, you know, they are gender fluid, how they feel about it changes depending on the circumstance, depending on who they're talking to and how they're feeling in the moment. And it's also a big point in the story that they really have not truly figured out like how they want to identify yet. And that's a big source of like anxiety and stress for them as someone who has like kind of built a brand almost on, a, on their identity being a certain way. So I think that's definitely something that was very, I paid attention to and I imagine was like something that you guys had to be very careful with and how you want to get it across. Yeah, for sure. Like you said, like terms like one and stuff, like there isn't really like an English equivalent. So we had to try and think of an equivalent and then maybe explain it more in the translation notes. And I'm really thankful that I got that space at the end of the book to kind of explain some of my choices because usually translators are supposed to be like invisible and you're not really supposed to like think about what they're doing. So Right. And especially because how the Japanese LGBT community, how LGBTQ uh, topics and terms are talked about in Japan differs somewhat from in the US. And there can be some confusion, like, uh, and we talked about it in the first volume, but, you know, in Japan, they still refer to gender dysphoria by gender identity disorder. So it's good to have, like, a translation note to, like, clarify that, you know, in Japan, obviously, this is a term that we haven't used in, like, many years in the US, but they still use it there. And it's important to have these translation notes just to communicate, well, you know, here's the context, here is, like, the reason for these choices. Uh, Because, like, the readers may misunderstand. Uh, Like, I recently, you know, two stripped of flesh, you know, another really great manga that is a story about a trans male character written by a trans author like they it is like coming out and a lot of people can get a review copies uh, but there was like a review that was criticizing like the inclusion of certain terms in the book uh, and like the translator of the book was reacted and saying uh, there were translation notes to explain that unfortunately in the review copy they just weren't there but it's important to have that there for like clarity for the reader who might not really get the cultural differences in between how these very sensitive topics are talked about between the different cultures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I was actually about to bring that exact example up because I'm friends with the guy who translated that story and like he knows his stuff. So yeah, it was sad that he was called out for that. But he yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. It seems that they were able to clarify that I saw in the follow up conversation. But yeah, it just goes to show these translation notes are like important to have important to like clarify because there are just some things that you know are not really talked about or taught of a certain way in U.S. queer communities compared to Japanese queer communities. Like the term ex-gender is not a term that we necessarily use, but it's like a very broad term in Japanese that encompasses a lot of other different gender identities as is discussed in the translation notes for the third volume and also in the story. And it's important to just like go into that and explain that to readers. Well, I also, I mean, TJ and Leo, do you have any other like uh, observations, like or, like thoughts on like approaching the translation and approaching adaptation that you wanted to share. Uh, do you want to go ahead, TJ? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, as as Leo mentioned, you know, like, it's always great when there's space in the back of a book to go into translation notes, because you really get to see why the translation or why the localization went away it did, which is not to mean that like, you need to read that note in order to like, understand what happened on that particular page. But I feel like it always like is great when you have that additional context. Totally. Which is why I'm like, I'm so thankful for Leo because um, 
he did like such a great job of like adding comments on the sidebar of like his translation. So like not only could I see the approach of where he was going for, but sometimes if he offered like alternate suggestions of translations or I'm like, oh, that's good. Or like, you know, I would be like, oh, I like this part of this and this part of that, maybe kind of mix them up together. Or I would take a comment that he would left and adapt it into a translation note um, to give like that additional perspective of it. But I, I, I think like that is one thing to consider when you are reading a work in translation, because it's not, you know, like, for example, with the with the example that you just named with to strip the flesh, if an outdated term like uh, dissociative gender disorder is like used, it's because like in the context of like it being in Japan and like how gender and LGBTQ plus issues are in Japan, that is very much a reality. And, you know, I, I think one thing that I think is important to keep in consideration when working on something that is a localization is you want to give the English reader, the English language reader, the same reading experience that a Japanese reader would have. At least that's how I like to approach it. <laughs> um, so I love it when you get to see like all of those layers come together, like seeing like why the translator would choose towards something a certain way. Like what is the additional uh, like cultural context of something? Absolutely. And it doesn't just extend to, you know, just the topics of like how uh, gender identity is explored in Japan, but also just like more subtler kind of nuances of Japanese culture that are like kind of have to be kind of adapted uh, to communicate the same intent to the English readership. Like and one that really stood out to me was the adaptation of Famirazu to like a cheap restaurant. Uh, in the first volume because like if you you could have said like family restaurant but like that wouldn't really communicate the same intent of like what a family restaurant is like culturally in terms of the significance of like why they would go there but by adapting it as like cheap restaurant you're communicating more the intent of like oh the students you know go to cheap restaurants just to hang out just to eat and I just thought, you know, it's like choices like that that also sound like, oh, you know, just communicating like the same like intent of what the reader is meant to take away by like a certain term or by a certain phrasing. Also prevents us from assuming that they were hanging out at an Applebee's or a Chili's, <laughs> <laughs> which is very helpful. That's <laughs> what most students I assume would hang out at. Just hanging with my homies at Applebee's after school. <laughs> <laughs> Where else is there to go? <laughs> the fabled McDonald's is also another popular choice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll get into even more thoughts about localization, choice and thoughts on that as we get into our discussion of the series proper and our thoughts on it. One thing that strikes me is that we didn't, as we are often forgetful to do, we didn't really outline the premise of Boys from the Riot at the top of the show. Uh, but I think that's a great jumping off point into our discussion of the series proper. And I want, you know, TG as the editor, how would you describe Boys from the Riot to readers? You know, give them your pitch and then encapsulate like what the ethos of the series is. Yeah, uh, so I guess my elevator pitch for Boys Are in the Riot would be, it is about Ryo, a transgender high school student, and he's not only kind of struggling trying to ground himself within his gender identity, but he's also struggling with finding people in his corner, allies, friends, family members uh, to confide to. He feels like he can't bring this up with his parents, he can't bring this up with his best friend, who he 
also kind of has a crush on. And there's a new classmate in his class and he looks like he's, you know, a bit of like a tough guy. He's in like this other kind of crowd and he's like, oh, well, he's a guy I'm definitely not going to be getting along with. But really, the one vehicle that he can use that he feels so comfortable in his skin where he feels like he can express his true gender identity is when he's wearing his favorite clothes. So he goes out shopping one day uh, and he actually bumps into the new guy in his class and they grab the same t-shirt at the same small little pop-up shop and his classmate's name is Jin and Jin is like, hey, we have the same taste in fashion. You know what we should do? We should start a fashion brand. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And at first, Iryo is like, you know, he's not sure about it. He's on the fence. He's still kind of, you know, he's still thinking that Jin's like a little bit out there. And then he has this aha moment where you know, he sees like Jin acting like his authentic self and he wants to like get to that point. And there's a very like emotional scene where he just kind of lashes out and comes out to him. And, you know, he's like, you know, what's the point of even trying anymore? And it's in that interaction with Jim where he realizes that, you know, Jin's like, you know, I can't meet you halfway if you don't tell me that. So really, he sees the value in you know, having allies, having friends, like, you know, being able to find people that you can confide in. And that is the beginning of their journey to not only start their own fashion band, but to really create a brand where they can create clothes that anyone can feel comfortable in. And I realized that I got very invested in that. And that was a lot longer than an elevator pitch. That was a very long elevator ride. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. It was an enjoyable ride. Where are we going to get to our floor? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that was a great encapsulation of the premise. And in that, I think what is so appealing, of course, that it is so much a story about like finding a community in another person, being able to form a relation of trust and having an ally in another person and feeling more comfortable in yourself. But also through those experiences of building trust, becoming more confident in being more open, being more proud to be yourself around other people, not like being afraid to let them know who you are. And also in, in that like I think the series explores a lot of really interesting things about identity and ways to express your identity and sometimes the ways in which you might entrap yourself into like stifling your identity for various social uh, fears or reasons. One thing I wanted to ask you also is because you had first encountered Gaku's works through light, which also deals with similar themes of a trans boy, like trying to navigate, you know, a world that is very hostile to him, uh, ultimately finding an ally and then ultimately making a very bold statement at the end where he's unafraid anymore to like be himself and like really make statement, well, hey, like, look at me, I'm who I am. I wanted to get your thoughts and impressions of, you know, how Gaku's explorations of these themes and his ideas uh, evolved from Light or like how you think that their development was from Light to Boys from the Riot. Yeah, it, it really was great also being able to include that as a bonus at the end of Volume 4 because, you know, not only you you know, you feel this like emotional resonance of like, you know, having finished like Boys on the Riot and then kind of getting the rewind a bit and seeing where it all began in this one shot. And I think one thing that really hit me is that the tones are a little bit different between Light and Boys on the Riot. Like, I don't want to call it dark, but I think that there definitely is like a harsh reality in in light because you do see blatant homophobia you see bullying yeah i mean he's subjected to like outright uh harassment and violence like the bullies like physically assault him so it is really harrowing and stressful 
Like in Boys Run the Riot, Rio, you know, he's under a lot of psychological pressure, but it never goes as far as him like being violently chased by bullies and then pushed down like a hill and stuff like that. So it's it's really really distressing stuff. Can I just say, I'm, you know, I, I really appreciate that you guys included that one shot at the end of the volume, because um, I thought it was a really good one shot on its own. Like, usually when we talk about one shots on the show, you know, they're usually so like, proof of concept, like, oh, there's kind of something here, but it's not really that fully formed, like you only get that when a one shot gets a series. But uh, I, I thought this one shot was really good on its own. But I will say, you know, we brought it up, but man, yeah, that one shot is so much it's so much harder to read than the than the actual series is i wasn't ready for it i'm kind of glad that the actual series that came after isn't like as cruel (laughs) yeah it's not sadly it's not like an unrealistic depiction of harassment against trans people however yeah it is like a really tough and stressful read so I, I do appreciate that the main series is like somewhat kinder in that regard where the stuff Rio subjected to it never gets to the level of like violence against him even though Rio is also like harassed in a similar way like you can definitely see like treads of ideas that will be returned to in Boys on the Riot like Rio's classmates writing, or I mean, Maki's classmates in the one shot writing on his desk, like it's similar to Rio in middle school getting that like letter from his classmates where they're all, you know, calling him a slut and stuff like that. So you can see like ideas that he's developing here that Gaku returns to in the main series, which also includes, you know, even though there are very tough parts of the story, it ultimately still has that defiant uh, message of like the protagonist ultimately coming to decide that they are no longer going to be afraid to be themselves and to just make a grand statement to like their entire class to be like, hey, you know, I am who I am gonna look at me for who I am. That, that was powerful, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Rio doesn't do it in as, in as bombastic uh, or as fiery a way as Maki, uh, literally. But it, it's still, like, the uh, idea, I think, of Ross. Yeah, I think what was really fascinating, too, is just how clothes are used as a vehicle to express oneself. It, it's the complete opposite, because in Boys Run the Riot, that is... Jiro's vehicle, that's where he feels that he is his most comfortable, where he could truly express himself. And at the end of Light, Maki just burns his uniform, you know? (laughs) Um, And I I think it's so funny because you get the same power in those messages, but it's really kind of fascinating seeing how both of the characters are like approaching it. Right. It is like a really interesting contrast because with Maki, he does just like shed his clothes to like people see and acknowledge the real him. Whereas with Ryo, his statement is to come to school in the boys' uniform to say, like, yeah, I am a boy. And I'm going to make you look at me. And he has that moment where, like, he is, like, kind of uh, undressing the collar of his shirt and to reveal, like, his T-shirt underneath that has the big statement of, like, the punch through the wall of all these, like, different gender messages and symbols, like, around it to indicate, like, yeah, it's him expressing that he has a desire to break free from these gendered stereotypes and assumptions about him and to be just seen as himself. But yeah, like this idea of like expressing yourself through the clothes you wear. It is so interesting that in the one shot, the liberation is found in shedding the clothes. Whereas in Boys on the Riot, it's through the adornment of the clothes that make Rio feel so valid. Look, look, all I'm going to say is both statements equally as powerful. Yeah. Yeah. They're very cool. Visual moments, dramatic moments. 
But I also think a very nice connection between the one shot and the main series is also making the connection between like other people who are outcasts in society, marginalized in society, and then finding kind of community solidarity in each other. Because Maki's like manager or coworker who like is respectful of him at his workplace and goes to reassure him after the big incident there like gets him fired he is like a korean person and he so he could like empathize uh with this idea of like feeling like an outcast uh because you know he's different from the other people around him but like you know trusting that you know even if he's seen a different way if like people know that he is uh, korean in the same way rio is seen a different way or maki is seen a different way people know that he's a boy like it's a really nice moment to just finding like community and finding like a, someone who will understand uh, what you're going through and also someone who'll go to the back for you and to be there for you and i think that's like kind of the ethos of like uh boys from the right as a group in the series it's like they are like people who you know they stand out they're the nails that stick out they don't just fit in with what society expected them and just go with the flow they want to stand out and they want to be true to themselves, even if that's not necessarily what is expected of them. And so, yeah, they are ostracized. And we see like in the final volume, like as they're contemplating like who their audience is, who they want to communicate with, they realize, oh, it's other marginalized people. It's other people who in society are like outcasted. It's like this single mother who does not fit the image of single mother. It's like, and as Jin is walking, contemplating, it's like, you know, just other people who just feel kind of alone, who feel like they don't fit in with their surroundings. And so I just like that embracement of community of a just a counterculture group just banding together to make a statement and make a space for themselves yeah yeah no definitely and i i think also you see really resonate between both pieces just um the difference that like one person can make and really the difference that having like just one person that you can confide in because i think you see that through ryo's journey how you know befriending jen really kind of dominoes and it ultimately um you know, you see it, especially in the the volume with Subasa, where he shows up to school with like the boys uniform on and, you know, he reveals like the t-shirt underneath. You know, he he gets the confidence to be really who he is around other people besides like just Jin. And you also see that in light too, when Maki um, confides in Kimura. And I, I don't know, like that just hit me so much when, you know, you're you're new at a workplace and you want to confide in someone, but you don't feel comfortable to come out to everyone. Like, I just love that conversation where Kimura is like, hey, I caught you staring at those girls over there at that table. So yeah. which one do you think is cute? Like, I, I just love that. <laughs> um, not the whole um, sexualizing of women thing, but just the fact that, you know, he sees Maki as Maki from the get-go. Mm-hmm. They kind of have something in common that they can share. He makes an effort to make a connection and treat Maki, you know, as a boy, making feel like he's being seen as a boy. Because it's revealed, like, in their conversation later at the karaoke place that Maki did reveal himself to be a trans boy in his interview with him. And so you see now, and reflecting upon that scene where they're talking about, like, the girls are interested in, that he's making an effort to, like, 
go to the bat for him to like, you know, look out for him and to also just treat him as he wants to be treated. So I appreciate that considerateness of him and uh, like just showing an example of like just supportive allyship. I think we see reflections of this character both in Jean, but also in Miski in the main series in Boys on the Riot, because, you know, obviously in the second volume, Rio starts to work in Izakaya. And I think Miski sort of feels that same role. It's like kind of she immediately comes to suspect that Rio may be a boy, and, but like she doesn't like kind of linger on the point when it's clear that he's uncomfortable, like just admitting that to her right then. But you see that she is being considerate of him and treating him kindly, like throughout the story in the workplace and looking out for him, especially like, you know, when they go on like his supposed like welcome party that turns into, you know, actually it was a way for Shimada and the other coworker to get them alone to go out with them. You know, she comes to help Rio and like get him away from like that stressful situation with Shimada and you know tries to you know be an empathetic ear for him and you know not push him into like talking about anything he doesn't want to but just like just being a person of support for him in the workplace and looking out for him. So I appreciate examples of allyship that Gaku explores both in the one shot and in the main series. Yeah and it's really interesting to see that you know like, for example, if if you're a reader having not known about Light until having read it in, like, volume four, it's you could kind of see, like, oh, I wonder if this arc or this part of Boys Are on the Riot was kind of taken or inspired by this aspect of the one-shot. I thought that was really fascinating because where, you know, Maki gets to be upfront and forward and be like, hey, like, I'm a guy, he tells that to Kimura in his interview, and Kimura's like, oh, yeah, sure, fine. Ryo has the complete opposite experience, where at first, the manager of this one place that he's interviewing for is like, oh, oh, well, I see, but you still have to wear the girl's uniform and you can't use the men's room because, you know, that'll be a problem. Um, right. I mean, it shows that he doesn't really understand because like, oh, you know, I couldn't choose the girl's bathroom no matter how I wanted. You understand, right? Like he doesn't understand really. Like even though he makes some sense of like saying like, oh, sure, I've heard about that. He doesn't actually understand Rio or even want to try and understand Rio as like, a trans boy. I think it was also really interesting because um, when Rio is leaving that situation, you can clearly tell that the um, karaoke guy does not see what the problem was for Rio. Exactly. Like, it's like, wait, why are you leaving? I thought I was doing everything right. Like, I thought I said all the right words, but it's just like making the situation so much more uncomfortable than it needed to be by just making it all so complicated and weird. Mm-hmm. I just want to bring up what we're talking about this moment because uh, there are a lot of like really subtly like visual things about Boys Run the Riot or moments that I really liked about the series. And one of my favorite moments comes after this bit where Rio does kind of just up and leave like, okay, this job isn't for me. I can't be myself here. I can't be myself anywhere. And I love how that's accentuated by the fact that he goes back to where his original like graffiti art from the very beginning of the series was and he sees that it's been completely erased basically telling him like oh well i can't be myself anywhere like it's literally a symbol of his oppression and i thought that was really powerful yeah no it is like the idea that yeah like it it feels like a big rejection of like you know he thought that he was in a place where he was finally going to be allowed or feeling like he could be comfortable expressing himself but then he's confronted with just this idea of like oh no like there's still people who are going to like stifle you like the graffiti yeah it's a race and you have the fence like no it's prohibited so it feels like it places real back in the box of saying no I can't really still trust in other people I still can't really come out because it's not still accepted for me to do that. 
just one of the many moments that made my heart sink. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many times, like reading the series, where I'd be like, "Ah, oh, mood. Ah, oh, mood. Oh man, now, <laughs> yeah. I'm, now I'm emotionally compromised. Now I'm crying." You know, especially with the passive aggressive way that the graffiti strictly prohibited sign is on every square foot of that yeah. wall. Yeah, after mm-hmm. it's covered up, just. <laughs> It was it was really heartbreaking, yeah. Yeah, and that's as far as another lettering moment goes. I mean, to make sure the perspective <laughs> on all those signs. Is, <laughs> that one was actually not too bad. I just made it once and then adjusted mm-hmm. the perspective each time. But um, I guess it is something I would notice more than <laughs> most people just casually reading the book. Like, oh yeah, they did that sign eight times. I mean, that's fair. I would do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. And I feel like the second volume with Ryo, you know, navigating his workplace is probably the most stressful stretch of the series in terms of the situations he finds himself in and just kind of the abject like rejections like he kind of experiences like you know, it was just so heartbreaking when, you know, he thinks he's having like this nice welcome party and making friends with his co-workers. But then Shimada holds his hand and makes it weird. And then it's like, it really messes with him because being confessed to he's like you know confronted with this idea that Shimada is seeing him as a girl and it you know really messes him up and it really accepts him and I just like how that's communicated with like his thought bubbles obscuring Shimada's own on that page like you know he just can't even process it because he's just so like lost in his own head and lost in his own like just anxiety in that situation and stress of it and then later just the page of like just thinking about of course I couldn't I shouldn't have gotten my head up. I know it was just going to lead to this again, lead to this rejection. And he just thinks about himself in his uniform. And it's just like, yeah, just that expression he makes, just that disgust and horror. It just really is powerful, real gut punch. And so there are a lot of moments like him slapping his hand on like the telephone wall too. Just like, yeah. Mm, yeah, that part was was really difficult to translate because I really related to that feeling of like, even though I am attracted to men, um, I've had times before I transitioned where like men would like come up to me and like show they're interested in me. But I just felt so, I, I just like dissociated and felt so odd because they weren't seeing who I really was because I wasn't who I was meant to be yet. And it's, yeah, I, it really, I think the manga really showed that really well. Yeah, just this illusion anxiety of not being seen for yourself. Yeah. It's like something Ryo really struggles with up until the point where he just makes the decision to just like show up and be himself at school in the boy's uniform. But yeah, I mean, it's also just the anxiety of dealing with being outed uh, with having no control of that by wing was also a situation that was like just so such a stressful moment of like oh no and just his fears of like oh my god am i is my family going to find out what will i do then and just being put in that decision where he was just not ready to confide in other people especially the people he was closest to and cared most about like chica like just his feeling of like just abject rejection of like feeling i want chica above all to understand as someone i really care about and love with but then in the conversation he's feeling that distance being put between them like chica is talking about his identity is like something that's like kind of an illness of like oh i wish i understood you wouldn't be suffering alone and he's just feeling so distressed about it and for dejected and he's just thinking to himself afterward after the conversation of like i never would have thought i would feel even worse for not having told someone rather than keeping it a secret 
because like he had no control in the way that Chica found out and then the way she processed it. If he had been able to tell him himself and been able to like communicate himself when he was ready more directly and carefully, this misunderstanding that then she has about why he didn't tell her and then this is feeling of kind of like distance that's been created between them wouldn't have been there it would have been close at least something could have been he controlled and so him having to navigate that situation and then ultimately find a way to take back control of being able to come out and express his identity in his own terms his own way and then like also confront wing and being like you know take that video down i I don't want to be out in your video. I don't want to make this about identity. I want to have control over how I present myself and how I see myself. And I don't want that to be a part of the art I create. You know, I thought that was a really like moving uh, narrative. Can, can I just say that conversation with Chica, you know, when Rio, uh, again, that moment visually accentuated with him sitting by a fence, you know, taped off with police tape labeled keep out. Like, again, it's such a small visual thing, but that really communicates, like, how he's feeling, how he feels like he has to put up these walls around people, how he can't, like, open up to other people. He literally wants to keep other people out. Right. But then we have him, like, immediately on the next page, kind of get that resolute moment of, like, you know, he's sitting by this keep out fence and thinking, like, oh, man, like, I am afraid to let anyone in. But then he, like, comes to make the decision, you know what, no, I'm going to leave this place and I'm going to make people confront and see the real me. One thing that I was just so floored about with that whole moment is that like, it's like such a thing that at least for my own kind of coming out queer experience where it wasn't like, okay, I'm now out to everyone kind of a thing. It's like I came out in pockets. And so like having that experience of like only being out to like a few people or having the experience where you actually feel like you can be out online but not in real life because of who is seeing certain things. I think that was very like palpable and relatable. So I just, it was just, I just, I guess, like, appreciated seeing that reflected in a manga and so realistically, because I'm like, oh, yeah, I've definitely been there before, where it's like, okay, I'm like, these people know, but these people don't. And, you know, you're comfortable having certain conversations with some people and not with others. So, yeah. I also really appreciated in a stressful way the scene where a few of Rio's classmates just kind of walk up to him and are just like, oh, we support you. We're not like prejudiced. And it's like they think they're saying something nice, but Rio just feels very othered and singled out and strange. They're still very ignorant. Yeah. I mean, they're still treating him as an utter, as someone like they don't really get or know. Instead of like, you know, just treating him as a person and just for himself. They're like just seeing him, oh, this is the trans guy we know. And they make it all about his identity. And we have these like jerk ass kids who are like come up and ask him like, how do you, are you into girls and how do you do it? And you just like have like this, these super inappropriate comments, which uh, Mm -hmm. I've been party to. I've I've seen firsthand in real life happen. How how do you, how do you fuck? (laughs) Yeah. I've been in a circumstance, I've been in a situation where I was uh, in a group and then a woman asked like someone who, who was else was in the group and who was the lesbian and was like, oh, well, who is the, the man and woman in your relationship? Oh, oh my God. <laughs> this, yeah. and then. People still do that? This, this, ha- yeah, not, I was, that surprised, I was in this situation, it was only five years ago. Jeez. I mean, even for oh, myself, I've yeah. been to the do it myself of like where I mentioned in the same group that, you know, I had like kind of gender dysphoria and whatnot, you know, and then someone asked me, oh, have you tried like wearing dresses? And it's like, oh well, it's not Woof. really 
just about oh uh, yeah. wanting to wear dresses. Uh, gender it is not dysphoria. that simple. <laughs> no. So it's it's just that kind of this. It's like trying to be nice, but just showing your ignorance and kind of alienating people because you are making it very clear to them that you're seeing them as an other and some kind of like alien existence to them, which is just makes so isolating. It's like a support that is for the other person to feel like they are being helpful instead of saying yeah. things that make any sort of sense for the trans person having these things said at them. Yeah. It's such an unfortunately universal experience, I think, yeah. for a lot of trans people. That definitely happened to me because I came out at, when I was Rio's age as well. And I remember one time um, my friend posted on Facebook, like, this is Leo. He's my trans guy friend. Oh and I was like, please, oh. can you not... <laughs> Like, I wasn't out to everyone yet. No. And he was like, got all defensive oh about it. Like, I'm helping you. Like, I'm telling <laughs> no. you, teaching everyone oh, about trans no. stuff. Oh my, God. oh, my God. You had a real life wing in your life. <laughs> yeah. This is literally what wing did. This philosophy was like, oh, by putting you out there, you know, now you don't have to hide it anymore. <laughs> yeah. You know, basically. it worked for me to be uh, okay about myself. I mean, in your situation, it doesn't sound like quite the same thing because your friend seemed to be like, oh, no. It's like, you know, look at my friend. Yeah, yeah, and they they were queer as well, so like it is re- like a intra community thing. Okay, so it was similar. I mean, that's also what I appreciate is that you have like kind of this conflict from you know two queer people and how they approach like coming out and like being themselves around other people. Because like Wings' philosophy was like, well, I was able to find a lot of community and adorations through coming out in my way, becoming an influencer. So you know, what's the harm in like coming out, or what's the harm in like entertaining, going on a date with everybody? It might be fun for you, and not really understanding Rio's particular situation or how Rio like feels and what he's comfortable with. And then in his own right, like Wing is also interesting because he says of this is like, he says like, oh, you know, it's so great to like be an openly queer influencer, but because like he kind of boxed himself in as a particular identity and then he like literally created like a brand and business off of that identity when his like gender and sexuality started to change and started to mature even more. And, you know, it kind of caused a sense of disillusion comfort in it because like now he's no longer what his audience perceived them to be and he was racked with that kind of guilt and there was all sorts of aspersions caught on his authenticity and it's just like such a messy situation but it was like an interesting thing to kind of acknowledge and explore of like how like you know being out in online spaces and like kind of defining yourself by your identity especially when you're like an influencer like marketing yourself based on your identity how that could like really kind of actually box you in in the same way as like facing kind of like a lot of just prejudice like keeping you from coming out because like now you're also boxed into a social situation where you're afraid to evolve your identity and you're afraid to just acknowledge that your identity could be changing and stuff like that because you have to still present yourself a certain way like he still wing still found himself trapped under the social break where he couldn't be true to himself in the same way rio still struggles with that in his daily life even though he's an openly queer person he still couldn't be like truly openly honest about himself to his audience until ultimately he made that confession video. That was a moment I really related to just as someone who came out as trans on social media started to make work about being trans and then realized like, oh, this isn't always going to be something that is going to sort of like meet where I'm at 
or meet where people who follow me on social media are at. Um, it can just be a kind of precarious way of discussing gender on the internet. Like, especially if you try to tie your livelihood to it, like it's not always going to be a presentable or clean situation, if that makes sense. Like it's not going to be universally understood. Totally. I mean, especially when other people like just these anonymous people online, uh, they really kind of assume you or think of you in a certain way. And so when you change your identity, you know, you're no longer really presenting the same way you could risk like kind of just a reaction of being upset, like Wings audience in this of like being like, yeah, well, I taught you were a certain way. I trusted you in a certain way. And now I feel betrayed by that or disillusioned by that. In the same way, like it's kind of similar to this kind of discomfort that Shimada feels when Ryo tells him that he's a boy. Shimada's like first thing, um, well, I liked you as a girl, and then it's like, you know, I that's how I see it, and so I can't really, you know, jive with that. And it's really all just projecting his own discomfort on that, and like the fact that, you know, he's uncomfortable with seeing him a certain way and just accepting him for who he is. In the same way, it's like Wing's audience is so unforgiving of them, of like just you know, being able to like just come to more of an evolving understanding of themselves and just not really forgiving your understanding of this idea of like, you know, your identity is a journey. It's like kind of an evolving thing that you'll understand over time. What was unfortunate about Wing is that they kind of created this identity for themselves, a brand around their identity when they were so young like before they truly figure themselves out yet. And so that just put a lot of pressure on them when that started to change as they grew up and started to understand more. But even at the point we see uh, them in the series, they still haven't really figured it out. It's still going to be a process journey for them. And that's okay. And people should be allowed to be given that freedom and understanding and just be understood at their own terms, you know, and be acknowledged and respected for how they identify but to not have that define uh, just who they are completely. I think Wings Art is also a great example of you can also think you know who you are and then that can change so i love how their arc is used to just show like the fluidity in like gender identity and gender expression and you know it's okay if you're still a journey and it's okay if you know you're not the person who you thought you were five years ago or you know to you you still are but you're trying to see like what does that mean like how do you define yourself then so i thought it was great seeing that because i feel like i haven't read that in a manga before where you're actually like seeing the character's journey in like i guess for lack of a better term like real time (laughs) yeah and especially a story about like someone who has come out you know already as queer but then their identity is still evolving and changing there's having a deepening understanding in themselves and they're still at the point we leave them having completely figured themselves out like that i think is a valuable narrative because it can take people a long time to really come to understand like how they identify how they feel and understand these things about themselves. And that's okay to give people that space, that time for them to get an understanding. But like just sometimes in like these social environments, both in real life and on social media online, like a lot of people don't give people that space. And so that can make them feel kind of afraid to, you know, allow them to explore that part of themselves, which can be really damaging for their self-image and their mental health. Can I just say real quick, I really want to thank this manga because uh, I actually learned something new reading this manga. Uh, I actually didn't know that bi-gender was like a thing before reading the series. I thought I thought that was really interesting. 
like specifically around the point where Kashiwabara is like, you know, bringing up all these different concepts of like being gender fluid or agender, like basically telling Wing that he's been like, you know, doing his research and everything, which I thought was a nice scene. And uh, right. I, I think that's another great example of allyship from Kashiwabara's part of like tr- making the effort to try and learn and more understand of how to, you know, relate and help the person he cares about. So I appreciate that. But that is also a good scene. You know, it's great that you were able to kind of learn about more uh, gender identities and ways of like, you know, expressing yourselves through that. Because yeah, like there's a, there's a lot of nuances in the ways like people kind of feel and like how they want to identify and think of their gender. There is a lot of like fluidity and there's a lot of different ways to express that. So it's good to just have that moment where he's talking to Wing and is like saying, hey, you know, uh, maybe you can, could you think of yourself as X gender or are you closer to this or this or this? You know, like uh, it's okay that you don't quite understand, quite know just yet. But, you know, like what I appreciated more than anything was that Kashiwabara sees Ibasa as who he is. You know, it doesn't matter how he they identify. What's just important is that they are them and they are there to support them, like just along their journey as they continue to figure themselves out. Mm, for sure. But yeah, I appreciated just that kind of exploration, just that statement that, yeah, there's many different types, like even in just the concept of non-binary gender, genders or gender fluidity, like to kind of label yourself along that spectrum to kind of identify yourself. So, you know, I think that that was a great kind of moment to kind of emphasize that. And to also show, again, like a great moment of allyship as someone who's like, you know, took the effort, the time to learn about these things and to try to have a conversation with the person he wants to help and then kind of communicate and help them like navigate their own journey. I also really appreciated Kashiwabara's just kind of quiet allyship throughout the series, just like would kind of be in the background for a lot of scenes and then would suddenly be like, are you thinking of this term that I researched when I was eight years old? Um, I thought it was just really sweet and also kind of just a humorous thing to have going on. Yeah, just quietly being supportive. And I also appreciated, though, that when Ryo was being harassed by Ota in the classroom, Kashiwabara someone like throws like his bag at him. Yeah. <laughs> just like saying, will you shut up already? And so that's a good example of Bajik too. It's like when like someone who's screwed is like being harassed, like standing up for them, like shutting down someone who is harassing him or being a bigot is also a good thing. It's like him doing that changes the atmosphere in the classroom. It completely turns them against Oda. And so that was super helpful. Yeah, like being the person to say like, hey, what you're doing is mean-spirited and wrong can really like help other people feel more encouraged to be like, no, I agree. This is mean-spirited and wrong. Totally. When you can have someone to push back against like, you know, prejudice or like mocking, it's so great. Because we also see that with Chica uh, in the first volume of like, especially like after Jin gets his big speech at the school assembly and like a lot of people around Rio are like mocking him and stuff. Chica is doing it's like, oh, really? Well, I thought he was cool. And that kind of just takes them aback. And that just shifts the conversation where they have to be more like agreeable to Chica's perspective. And so they can't be as harsh and then we see instances of that just several times for like chica is you know when because she does sees what rio and what boys running around to do is differently that makes the other classmates kind of back off of like their mean spiritedness towards them and be more kind of agreeable and accepting to the, a different perspective yeah can, can i just say i hate that little rich boy so i thought that moment in particular was pretty <laughs> cathartic yeah <laughs> it was very satisfying the moments where he just gets smacked both like each guy punching him in the face and then yeah like gosh just throwing a bag at him and just clowning him. I mean, I think it was also very satisfying too, because like him and Kashiwabara are kind of in the same clique 
So it's nice seeing that, like, it's not like Kashiwabara is just an ally when it's convenient or behind closed doors or Justice Sabasa. It's, like, really nice being him, like, calling Oda out on his shit and being like, well, you shut mm-hmm. up, like, you know, like, in front of their <laughs> mm-hmm. whole class, you know? Um, yeah. And I... I think that was great because I feel like it's kind of like the default thing that it could just it could just be so easy for people to just kind of shut down and not stand up or like tell the person after the fact after the damage is done like hey I don't think that was cool and I like how Kashiwabara just flies off and calls people out on their shit you know between Oda and then like his own friends when they're in the convenience store like talking about Tsubasa I just really like love seeing that about his character I thought it was really endearing Mm -hmm. totally yeah, it's important to stand up in public, not just in private, you know, confront someone when they're seeing harassment going on. Mm-hmm. And I love how they took the sort of none of my business statement into the t-shirt design. I thought that was just a really good way of reacting to the whole situation. Like, this is no one's business. This is someone else's own expression of gender and sexuality, and it's their own thing. And we don't have to have a whole internet discourse about it or some sort of public discourse about it. Yeah, no drama. It's like cancellation just because of like, these people, Wings fans, you you know, just they're just very unforgiving of like his situation. So I think that was a nice ape, and it also just showed that they were like unafraid of like, yeah, they'll lose their following or whatever, but they don't care. I just love this, you know, there's some laughing as the follower count is going down. Yeah. I think that's just a great moment of solidarity between them. Mm-hmm. Also, we, we haven't talked about this aspect of the series a lot, but you know, this is also a series about fashion sort of in the same vein as something like Princess Jellyfish in a way. Um, man, mm-hmm. I would buy, I would buy every t-shirt from this line. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've mentioned it on the <laughs> previous episode our interview with Leo but you know TJ uh, give an idea to Kidansha here <laughs> maybe do some sort of collab <laughs> I am I am and... trying I am trying um, and, uh, I'm, but, but Colton I'm glad you said that because I was going to be like so can I just say what everyone is thinking I want all of their shirts like <laughs> yeah please <laughs> the sh- real life pop up should happen with the their line of that would be course. so fun yeah, yeah. and I I don't, I don't know about you guys, but like one of my favorite moments in the final volume is I love when Jin is explaining their design and he's showing like the crown that's like on the inside of the shirt on your heart. Mm-hmm. And he's going into this wonderful monologue and like the drunk old guy who just had one too many beers is like, what? That's stupid. Like, you know, um, yeah. just completely like ruining this like emotional, like built up moment. But yeah, I would wear everything that that they have in a heartbeat. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. Absolutely. Especially considering that 90% of my wardrobe is t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> would you even wear the uh, yeah, samurai shirt? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I want an yeah. entire English samurai line. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> but that scene where the all drunk is like lambasting their line is also another great example of like just showing public support for someone and allyship with someone makes a big difference because like Chica then comes in and stands up and saying like hey I came to buy their clothes not just as a friend because I think they're cool and then that's again shifts the atmosphere in the room and we see like you know more of their friends come in but they also see then so, like a complete stranger come in and find their clothes cool so again I think that's just another great example of how showing support for someone in public can really like help them out but I do really appreciate just them learning more about the fashion world in the final round and like 
kind of teaming up with Joe and his line. And it really makes me wish that the series could even continue to see like their journey grow even more, much like in Princess Jellyfish. Mm-hmm. But I appreciated just like the conversations and the talk that Joe puts into them where it's like, hey, you know, think about like what you want to communicate through your brand and through your clothes and really through your art. Ultimately, it's like, well, who do you want to reach? What is the message you want to communicate about yourselves and to other people who you want to reach out to? And I think this is, is a, just a good message that plays upon and builds on like the theme, just the personal narrative of like becoming confident in being yourself and coming out about and being open about yourself to others, but then also like being able to express yourself more openly and freely through the things you're passionate about, through the art you create, and then be able to show that proudly to other people. And in this case, you know, uh, Rio and Jim's parents. And uh, we don't see how Rio's parents like reacts to his clothing necessarily, but we do see like Jin's father come to the exhibit. And he acknowledges and takes it seriously, like, yeah, it's impressive. And he still has his, you know, misgivings of like, you know, can they really succeed at this? It's a difficult world. But like, you know, Jin, you know, sends up to him, like saying, hey, you know, this is the path I want to do on. And this is the thing I love to do. And I'm going to have no regrets going on this path. And so I think that wins him over. And I think that's just a good message to show. Like if you are really passionate about something, and you really love something, you should do it all the way. I mean, you should be unafraid to explore and share that passion in the same way you should be unafraid. And when you're comfortable, of course, like being open and true to yourself, to other people, especially the people you care about and you want to understand you. And also in doing that, you know, even if you're afraid of how they might react to you, and understandably so, you may find surprising understanding and allyship. Like with Rio, when confronting his family, you know, his mother like has a very negative reaction to it and starts like chastising and screaming at him. But then at the end of him, like just outlining why he's telling them and like why he wants to be himself and just live his life to his fullest, like he finds that his brother ultimately comes onto his side. If even though previously he had seemingly been against him or like had been giving him like this advice or saying like, hey, you know, don't wear these clothes at home. What would mom and dad think? Think of them. Like ultimately he ends up being like uh allied him of like saying like hey okay you know I'll stand by you. And I think you look good in your uniform. And so I appreciated that. I also really like how the resolution with Rio's family isn't fully resolved at the end of the series. Because I think there are not a lot of queer people, unfortunately, who have a fully 100% good relationship with their family about their own gender. And it's not always going to feel fully resolved in a way that can happen as easily in like a book or any sort of narrative story. And also as a slight tangent, I really liked how Rio decided, like, I don't want to just make clothes about my gender. Like his moment where he was like, being trans is just one part of me. I don't want it to be the only thing I focus on. I thought that was a really nice thing as a trans creator, because, you know, when I first came out, I think I wanted to like only talk about my gender and then realize like, no, this is just like a really regular part of who I am that is sometimes treated as strange, but that's not necessarily my fault. And I don't want to 
necessarily fixate on this part of myself just because a lot of the world sees it as strange. Yeah. And he, I also appreciate that Rio doesn't quite understand, like, just intricately, like, why he's drawn to graffiti and drawn to counterculture and this particular art that is uh, expressing this idea of kind of uh, liberation, like, freedom from constraint. But yeah, he realizes that that's kind of the vibe, the emotion that he really is drawn to. And that's what he wants to communicate to other people who also, you know, vibe with that sense of rebelliousness against barriers in life. And yeah, I really appreciated that. And that it is not explicitly something that is just tied to his identity. It is a huge part of like, you know, informs his perspective. But it's not just the only thing he wants to communicate about himself and his interests in his art and to other people. And yeah, to just go back on the matter of the family, like I do appreciate it that it's open ended, that obviously it's an evolving thing that his parents, you know, wouldn't probably immediately accept him. It'll be some take some time, you know, as is kind of true to life in many things and we don't really like see that evolving thing but we get that sense of hopefulness with his brother accepting him but it is like a great scene uh, just to have his mom react so vehemently to him coming out because that, that also felt very realistic and raw like she is like really centering herself in that moment of like her own discomfort and being kind of like annoyed of like, like Rio is making this decision to be different. And he, she's like saying like, why do you have to become be a boy? Like everyone gets fed up with being a woman. And she's like really thinking to herself and her mind is like, you know, I went through my own hardships, but like I grew and bear that I didn't like act out, lash out in the way that you are. Like, why won't you just like fall into line? Why are you You just got to tough it out and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. <laughs> yeah. And it, it shows that, you know, again, a lot lot of prejudice from this perspective comes from just this idea this discomfort and then that someone could like free themselves from like traditional social constraints but also kind of a resentment that they are doing that when they went through experiences and they didn't make a fuss about it they just went and buried it and they just feel like why do you have to be different why do you have to like make a scene why can't you just also keep your head down and I think that's an interesting conflict to uh, briefly explore between Rio and his mother that's not something we see in real life at all. (laughs) What I love so much about that scene, though, is that you still get such a positive emotional payoff because like every time I read that scene I would like be on the verge of tears at the end of it because the way that Joe is just smiling so proudly offering the invitation to his like fashion exhibit and he's like I hope you see me for the boy that I am like just Sorry, Leo, I just got to like sing your praises right now. Like that <laughs> so, so executed so beautifully. And, you know, I, I just love that, you know, you see that it's open ended. You see that it's not like, you know, his family is immediately going to accept him and his mother is still, you know, confused as heck about it. But I love in that moment, you get to see him like really radiating and yeah. just being so sure and confident in himself. Mm-hmm. It is a big moment of growth where he, he doesn't run away from the situation or shrink away. No, he just like stands firm against his mother's criticisms and just outlines, you know, I'm going to be myself and then continues to try to communicate and make connection by like showing them the poster for the exhibit and like still trying to make 
bad relationship. But it's ultimately going to be up to his parents to like respond to Rio's efforts in kind and see him for him is. But I, I do really appreciate that growth that Rio is going to be unafraid to be himself to other people. And yeah. he's not going to worry about what they think about him, not worry about their rejection of him, but he's going to meet them at their level. He's going to be himself around them and it'll be up to them to respond to him. Yeah, that scene was really, really poignant for me because it felt like for me, not just a conversation between Rio and his mother, but like, it felt like a conversation between trans men and like <laughs> the wider world because like a lot of anti-trans people, like especially anti-trans feminism, especially mm. in the UK right now, the main argument against trans men especially is like, you're just like a confused woman, like you don't know what you're talking about, like people assigned female don't know their own mind and that's kind of what Rio's mother is saying here, but like... Rio has this rebuttal to it that's very satisfying and yeah that was a like, very emotional scene for me to translate it was definitely a roadblock and me coming to terms with my own gender too because I was like well what if I just don't enjoy being a woman exactly right <laughs> um like what if it's just being a woman right now sucks but like coming to terms with like no I'm just also not a woman and being a woman right now sucks like those things can right. both be true it was just such a fascinating way to have the mob react yeah I feel like also, too, whenever I see conversations where everyone's like, oh, you know, like every everyone hates being this or everyone hates being that. And it's like, you sure you're not trans either? Like, you know, like- <laughs> yeah, that's the thing is like a lot of people are like uncomfortable to confront like maybe they aren't as secure in their own gender identity as they thought. And so they mm-hmm. feel like a little threatened by seeing someone else exactly. explore that process. Yeah. No, I mean, that conversation felt very true to life to those type of interactions and conversations. Mm -hmm. So I really did appreciate it. I don't have a good transition into this, but I want to make sure before we end the show eventually that I kind of want to get your guys' opinion on uh, on the ending of the series. Because when I finished reading the series, the ending of the series really feels like to me like it could have kept going but unfortunately just didn't and like i I think that's my only criticism of boys run the riot a series that i otherwise really enjoyed all the way through was man why isn't there more of this why can't i keep reading this (laughs) yeah i mean especially with them teaming up with joe and journeys and then you know really starting to pop up it feels like oh this is could be the start of like even a longer journey of them building their brand that i would have loved to continue following the series as they develop it in the same way as like a princess jellyfish i did get the sense that the series was cut short before a lot of ideas that gaku may have had were fully explored I will turn it over to, you know, you guys for your thoughts. But one thing that stood out to me is just the character that becomes a part of the club at the end in the final chapter, Hanai. This character, you know, we see her react to Ryo's speech in the classroom, the previous volume. So it feels like, oh, there was a setup for this character there. And I feel like there was more plans with her, but like the series couldn't get to that point so Gaku included her in the final chapter just to, to have some payoff or some element of this character be encapsulated or represented in the ending and there is also like a, I potentially it seemed like kind of in a plot thread that was never followed up on at like the end of like you know Rio making his big coming out statement to his classroom we see the teacher Hinata sensei she's just walking in the hallway and she's overhearing other teachers like comment on like oh like what are we gonna do with this situation we should like kind of nip in the bud before he starts asking for too much and that feels like a potential conflict 
that we never really get followed up upon, especially because it's an end of the chapter kind of cliffhanger kind of thing that just doesn't uh, really get continued. But I, I mean, I also, it's not, so that particular tread I feel didn't, is okay it's not continued because it also in the same way of like the open-endedness of Rio's parents the fact that Rio is still going to face you know some prejudice from social structures is you know just something that's you know kind of uh, reasonable to leave open and it feels you know pretty real to life is like you know even if he's found like new acceptance in his classroom you know it's still going to be conflicts at school conflicts in the larger world or whatnot but I do feel like there seem to be even more ideas that I feel like the author Gaku wanted to explore that he didn't really get to. But uh, I mean, I, I want your guys' perspective on that, especially you, TJ, if you have any insights or thoughts on it. Yeah, I feel like you definitely get like a bittersweet feeling from the last volume because I feel like, you know, things are just starting to rev up. You know, they meet Joe, like, you know, they're in this exhibition, they're being challenged to think about what they want out of their brand. And then it really, one thing that I think the ending does have is that it really does wrap up nicely in the last chapter. Like, I feel like to some extent it could feel rushed, but I think it really does end with like a nice little bow on it Mm -hmm. it ends as well as it could yeah i get the sense that gaku also had a heads up of like you know planning out the series to its ending because in just looking up news to see the timeline of like when the series ended the announcement of the ending came about like eight chapters before it actually ended so i think he was given enough time to plan out how he wanted to end the series so it does feel like it comes to a natural conclusion a natural like sentiment to wrap up on that encapsulates the team of the story but it does feel like there were maybe you know plot ideas that he had that he couldn't get to fully explore which i think is a shame yeah i'm curious like if we like got to see like what they'd be doing like you know like if there ever was like another spinoff or like you know if it ever does like pick back up like i wonder like oh what could they be doing like would it still be them in high school would it skip to them in college like <laughs> I'm, I'm just gonna say i could have easily read like another 10 volumes of this like i really i liked it that much yeah, <laughs> definitely, for sure. um i didn't know as much about the context of why the series ended when it did but i do think that the conversation that what is his name joe has with Jin's dad really was just a really nice bow to have towards the end of the series where it's like we don't know if they'll be financially successful as adults but I think like the sign that they will become successful adults is like they have this community they have these things they're passionate about they're like looking forward to the things they're creating and also with the character that's kind of introduced but also was subtly appearing throughout the series I think she was a really nice addition just because it really demonstrated how like even if you aren't directly helping someone come to terms with themselves like being yourself in a way that is confident and self-assured in front of other people can help give them that confidence to start to find a community themselves. Yeah, because like that shot of Hanai reacting when Rio is giving his speech, you know, clearly like it sparked something in her, you know, yeah. that made her think about like being more confident about her art maybe. And then Rio, I really like Rio like helping her in the hallway and then like noticing that she's passionate art and then just inviting her to join their brand. And I think that's like a good reflection reflection of like you know Jin extending an invitation to him to be partners at the beginning now he in turn is like noticing and helping out someone else who you know is very passionate about something a kindred spirit and like really uh, inviting them to become friends and a part of a larger community and I really really like that I like that you know we see her like kind of become more accustomed to the group after initially being like you know kind of nervous about coming and then just kind of like relaxing like after just seeing them be goofy, like uh, it's get just get distracted by a grasshopper. And then she also goes to look at it. So 
I do think it was a very sweet ending to just, again, reemphasize just the, the value of uh, extending a hand to someone who feels alone. I also like the implication that Chica would be more involved in the brand in the future. I thought that was very sweet. Um, and just a nice way to sort of bridge the gap that came from the way Rio's coming out was handled through just being outed on YouTube. Yeah. And like the distance between him and Chica is now closed because now she's a part of what he's doing and she's more part and more understanding of him. So I really appreciate that too. And it's okay. Like in terms of opening things that I think is okay, it's like, it's okay that like he hasn't really fully confessed his feelings to her yet and stuff like that because, you know, it's something that he can give time. It's just like a nice sentiment to be like, yeah, like, you know, his closer to Chica, this person he really cares about than he even was before when he was like, keeping the truth about himself inside and keeping secrets from her now that he's more able to be honest with her and then she's able to just give him her full support like they have an even closer relationship and i really appreciated that but yeah i really like the final page the final shot of course of rio just running to join all his friends it was really sweet and i it was very emotional the letter at the very end too just knowing it was ending for sure well, I, yeah, I mean, do you guys have any other, like, final closing thoughts on the overall story, uh, the ending, things you'd like to see before we wrap up? Oh, man, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, Boys Run the Riot is good, and you should read it. <laughs> I agree. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, I was going to say that. I think that definitely sums up what I'm feeling right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I really hope that this is the start of more trans manga by trans authors coming up. Yeah. Same, yeah. Especially focusing on trans male protagonists, which, you know, even is more underrepresented than trans women in manga. Like, I think that it's so great to have this story out and it's so great that Two Strip the Flesh is coming out soon. I really enjoy that story and very happy that it's going to get out. And I think it's just so nice to have this story available, to ha have a story where someone can see themselves represented in it. And and I'll just speak uh, anecdotally, I've known of people who read this manga and it really helped them on their own journey in like coming coming understanding. Oh, that's amazing. I'm glad. In particular, there was a video that I found very sweet by a young gender fluid creator. They created a video about like how boys run the road help them love YouTube and it, how they kind of related Rio's own journey of like coming out uh, and being proud of himself in creating fashion and creating, you know, through his art into like his own journey as a creator of YouTube videos and like expressing things about himself and about what he loves to the world. And I, I thought that was just a very sweet video and very sweet way that he was able to find someone to relate to uh, and connect with in the story and so i think that it's just so heartwarming to see like yeah it is really it is touching a lot of people it's just so important because it did make them feel seen and make them think about their own experiences and help them feel more secure and confident in being themselves and i, I really really admire and appreciate the series for that that is so delightful to hear and is like yeah. exactly what I have hoped to have happened, like for a reader to come across the series and get to have that fulfilling experience. And I feel like right now is such a great time right now in manga localization because I feel like there's almost this renaissance where more and more LGBTQ, like not just, you know, BL and Yuri, but more like memoir queer manga are coming out or no more manga by trans and queer and like ace protagonist about being like trans and queer and ace like it's so great 
being able to see more and more of those stories coming out. Like, I'm so excited for um, X Gender that's coming out soon. Yeah. Mm. And Is Love the Answer is another one that's coming out that I'm really looking forward to. And I've, I feel like I've, like, I think about when I first started reading manga when I was 10 and like how it could have shaped me if I had these kinds of stories, if that's what I was reading, you know? Um, yeah. Absolutely. It's really exciting to see that it's having that like positive and like emotional resonant experience with like the people who are picking it up and finding these series. So I couldn't be happier. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. It's, it's so hard to forget, even though I like grew up without a lot of information about like anything about being trans or just genderqueer in any sort of way, just like how rewarding it can be to just have a book of a teenager experiencing something that you might relate to and taking something from that. Like most of the books I read about gender or sexuality growing up were just seen as a very like scary thing to not be cisgender or straight. And this series and just a lot of other series that are coming out now are just being a lot more matter of fact and understanding and accepting of just queer people in a way that's really, really rewarding. And I hope it helps a lot more kids and younger people be able to come to terms with themselves and have just a full childhood faster. For sure. I mean, yeah, growing up, like just all the media where you would gravitate to characters were seen in them would be like they're coded characters. They're not like explicitly out. And sometimes the series would be at odds with, you know, whether it is actually embracing uh, more progressive themes, you know, I speak as a Rama half fan in that regard. But, uh, you know, it's so great that we have more stories about queer characters, especially trans characters written by openly queer and trans authors being brought out and being published. And not just in the Japanese comics, but also in the Western comics scene, we've seen more and more stories come out. And it's just really nice to see because, yeah, absolutely for younger generation readers and even like older ones, it's just great to have these stories available to be able to reflect upon your own experiences and to not feel alone. Just in the same way how the story emphasized so much of this, how important it is to feel understood uh, to be seen and as who you are and like to be have stories in which you can feel like hey i'm not alone in feeling these things i'm not alone in these experiences is just so valuable and important and helping a lot of young queer and trans kids like feel okay comfortable in being themselves and not be afraid of being themselves and i think that's just so valuable and i think it's really wonderful to see more stories like boys on the ride be published and be localized and just give that opportunity to readers. And it's so great to you know hear anecdotes and see that, that it is and has made an impact already on a lot of people who really found so much value in the story. And I want to thank you guys just so much for all the really thoughtful work you put into localizing and bringing this wonderful story over here. And for joining us today to talk about it. No, thank you for having us. It's like you said, this is just such a really special unique series on um thankful for the opportunity for all of us to be in the same virtual room again and celebrate it um especially now that you know this series is over and we can look back and reflect that on it absolutely this i think being invited to this podcast gave me the excuse to reread the series for the first time since i actually lettered it and i was able to just kind of pick up on a lot more things that i appreciated it that i didn't necessarily catch while actively lettering it so it's just nice to be proud of something you work on oh yeah absolutely yeah, there's definitely, I think this project is like the highlight of my translation career. Like I'm just so invested oh. in it. I love it. So thank you for having me. Oh, and thank you again for joining us. And yeah, I mean, we're really big fans of your guys' work and your work on this series. And we're really looking forward to Keiko Gakuzet's work. I know that he is working on a new series uh, as of early February. He's planning for it. So I'm really excited to see what that's about. Oh, I'm excited. 
Yeah, I saw, um, I think it was a few months ago, like, they tweeted that, like, he was hiring an assistant. So I'm like, well, that means he's working on stuff. That's so, a good sign. Fingers, fingers crossed. I really can't wait to see what's next from him. Yeah, he just has such a great voice, a great artist. And I'm just, I'm so excited to see what he does next. And I'm excited to see the next works from all you wonderful people. <laughs> and... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess that's a great segue into just letting the folks know where they can find you guys on socials and the work you're doing. And I guess we'll start with uh, Leo. Where can the good people find you? Yeah, you can find me at Leo Translations on Twitter. And I have been doing quite a lot recently, but I can't say anything. So <laughs> well, keep it mum. But looking forward to seeing it when you can publicly announce it. <laughs> Thank you. And are you still working on I Think Your Son is Gay, right? Um, no, that was handed oh. over to another translator. Oh. But um, yeah. Well, I still really love the work you did on the first two volumes. Thank you. And thank you. I also love that series. <laughs> that was my favorite <laughs> manga of last year. Oh, it's thank the, you our so best much. manga. Yeah. Yeah, it's brilliant. And Ashley, where can we find the you and the work you're doing? You can find me on um, Twitter and Instagram at Caswell underscore Ashley. And TJ, where can the people find you, work you do? And, you know, if you want to give any recommendations for folks who are boys in the riot, like for uh, existing or upcoming Kodansha releases, uh, feel free to go ahead to do that too. Yeah, sure. Uh, I can mostly be found on Twitter um, at Ferentini, teeny as in size small, since I am quite short. And a few series that I'm really looking forward to uh, that are coming out, um, One Dance. Uh, it's about a high school student who um, he has a speech impediment, so he has a difficult time communicating with other individuals, but he finds that he can really express himself through dance. So in the same way that like you get that emotional resonance in Boys Run the Riot, it's also a beautiful story in that regard as well. Um, and in terms of representation, I have never read a series where a main character had a stutter or a speech impediment before. So if that's of anyone's interest, I can't recommend that series enough. That is coming out this summer. Uh, and I'm also really looking forward to Shonen Note, Boy Soprano, uh, yeah. which is a new series by Yuki Kamatani, who is the author of Shimanae Tasogare, and also Is Love the Answer? by Uta Isaki. That's the same author who did Mine-kun is Asexual. Yeah. Um, and it is about a young woman kind of going from like uh, her transitioning from being a high school student to going to college and her realizing her identity as someone who is aromantic, asexual. So uh, in the same way that if you feel like, you know, you've read Boys Around the Riot and it's like, wow, I've never seen these terms in a manga before. That is another great series because I have never seen so many of like the asexual identities that are mentioned in that book uh, be mentioned in it. Um, so that's another series that'll be out this fall that I'm really looking forward to. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, I love Kamatani and Saki's work and One Dance and Samit, so super looking forward to those. And uh, if I can draw one recommendation of my own of a book you let I really like Summer of You. I thought it was just yes. such a sweet Oh, my boys, I love them too, yeah. <laughs> Especially as someone, you know, has very close friendships built around, you know, uh, seeing movies together. You know, I just love the relationship between the central characters there. And then it's another great story of just someone, you know, letting their feelings on the someone they care about and then being, you know, treated with kind of deterrent as their feelings for them also grows over the course of that story. And so I thought it was so sweet. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. Um the in addition of Boys Run the Riot, the other two like queer series that I've edited that I really love are My Summer of You and then Whisper Me a Love Song. It is just like 
the sweetest sapphic thing I have ever read. So if you love uh, high school stories about first love and falling in love at first sight, it's a very, very cute series. <laughs> Wonderful. Another one I should check out. But yeah, a lot of great queer manga coming out and lots to look forward to and lots to hopefully talk with you guys again in the future. But until then, I think that it's time to quiet the riot down for now and then just <laughs> run off freely and happily into the future. Again to Leo, TJ, and Ashley for joining us on the show. It was just so fun to talk about the series with them and explore it so deeply, explore their work on it. And it was a lovely time. Hope to have all of them again on the show to talk about series they love and stuff they're working on that they really love and want to explore what it means to them. And it's just so, so fun to record. And I'm really appreciative of the great work that they do. And I am especially just so keen to just learn more about, you know, manga. Not just how it's localized, but also, you know, the perspective of people working on it. And there was a really great interview published recently, you know, heading into community shoutouts. You know, there's a great interview on Crunchyroll conducted by Kayla Coates with Geito Gaku uh, talking about his thoughts on, you know, writing Boys on the Riot what you know inspired him like what it draws him in terms of his experiences and what he's trying to communicate what got his attention and interest in exploring fashion in the work and using that as a motif to explore the themes about identity that he wanted to and like how he wanted to explore a bunch of different like identities and different types of people who were you know ostracized and people who don't quite fit into the you know mold of society and trying to struggle to find a place for themselves and how they do find that support network, you know, through friends and people that they feel comfortable opening up to their struggles with. And so I really enjoyed this interview, getting more thoughts and insights on what Gaku is going for in writing Boys from the Riot. And I absolutely am looking forward to reading his next work whenever it comes out and gets localized over here. He's just a really interesting creator. And especially after Boys from the Riot, I am so looking forward to uh, his next stories and how he continues to explore his themes and his works. And, you know, we talked about how Boys from the Riot as a story about identity can be really helpful to a lot of people, you know, who are like trying to still figure out their identities and how that was a goal of Gaku to kind of help through his story, you know, console people who have been struggling with identities to like say, hey, you know, you're not alone in like trying to figure this stuff out. And, you know, 
this is like you're not alone going through the experiences uh, these are coming from real you know authentically to someone who has gone through the experiences and putting them in their work so you know it gives you comfort that you're not alone in that and you know as I mentioned in the discussion I, I really want to shout out this video from false mine about you know they really did personally resonate with boys from the right so much in that same way that Gaku was hoping for and you know because they are non-binary teen who you know just doesn't quite know how to present how they want to be seen and they kind of struggle with that in their lives but boys are in the riot you know they were able to really appreciate how Ryo through fashion finds a way to explore and express his identity because that's what YouTube is for them what making YouTube videos is for them it's a way for them to kind of explore and take control of their identity i thought that was such a really sweet and really thoughtful video and it was just so cool to see that the series really resonated with them in that way and meant so much of them in that way so i definitely want to shout them out and their channel they're making some really nice video essays on a lot of different series so, you know, I would also recommend their video on the Uno versus Xenon fight and why they think it's like the best fight in Black Clover so far. So definitely, yeah, check out their channel and that video especially. For more podcast discussion of Boys Run the Riot, we'll recommend the Mogmac Nation's Cruise full series discussion that they published earlier this year. I don't agree with all their points. I feel like they kind of maybe overreach in their speculation that there were editorial interference uh, in some things that Gaku wrote in the story. But overall, I think their discussion of the themes and messages in the story, and particularly like kind of discussion of Tsukasa's character and like how the series explores how kind of really defining and commodifying your identity in a way, like being a public personality can be really damaging and kind of box you in in a way that prevents you from fully exploring or expressing yourself and other themes like that in terms of like exploring how you know it's kind of unfortunate that the onus is often on you know a marginalized person to try and reach out to and make other people understand them rather than people being immediately willing to understand so i think there was some good discussion about kind of frustrations of things that happen in Boys Run Red rather than like criticisms of like how things are portrayed. So I appreciate this got all the discussion points in that podcast for that. I think they did a really great job kind of exploring those angles. For more exploration of kind of why outsiders in Japanese culture can often be ostracized feel alone. And this is shifting more from, you know, the standpoint of LGBTQ people to just like general outsiders. Like Aijin Goomba published a video recently that I thought was really interesting about like why he has observed that, you know, outsiders, like particularly foreigners, you know, end up feeling kind of alone in Japan and the struggles and like kind of becoming integrated socially, forming friendships. It's just that there are a lot of Japanese social mores and customs that you are expected to follow and anyone who doesn't like follow them or is perceived as an outsider to those is kind of immediately like alienated or not taken seriously and that's uh, really kind of the sad thing and frustrating thing to have to you know experience and he relays a lot of like personal experience that he had you know trying to navigate that in Japan but also ways that you can uh, get around that as a foreigner in Japan especially like places where you can go and find people who are more receptive to reaching out to you and talking to you and making you feel welcome and I thought thematically this video 
was actually really apt for kind of a lot of what we explored in our discussion of like how people who stick out are often like alienated and isolated and made to feel alone but like you know just the value of just finding people who are willing to you know reach out to you understand you on your own level and like you know welcome you as a true friend and form like a support system uh and friendship group behind you i think you know this really uh fits well into those same themes and uh finally you know we didn't talk about it at the top of the show but Shinzo Abe was assassinated recently uh and so in the aftermath of that everyone might be wondering oh well I have heard that Shinzo Abe was uh fascist he had very terrible nationalist views and uh you're correct but if you want like more of a you know history of like Shinzo Abe and his impact and uh legacy as a prime minister in Japan Mr. Japan Podcast by Isaac Meyer did a good job of exploring his career, like where he came from, you know, in terms of like his family, who are also, you know, as far as also a career politician, and then like how he rose through the LDP, how he got the prime ministership the first time, and you know, why that term only lasted a year, but then how he came back and then he had the longest term as a prime minister in history because he... Uh, change the rules so he could run again for a third term and all like the terrible policies and stances he's had uh, especially in the third and fourth episodes really go into a lot of that especially his thoughts on japanese war crimes and or rather that he uh, did not feel that they were war crimes or whatever or distance himself from that or so you know and all sorts of, like, his, his other policies that are very famous, like Abenomics, like his thoughts on the birth rate, the thoughts on, like, oh, uh, the Japanese education system is going to teach the correct view, uh, the nationalist view of history and all that stuff. So if you want, like, a big overview of, like, what Abe's career and life was like as a politician and the impact he left on Japanese politics, I think that podcast is a good exploration, informative exploration of that. So those are going to be my shout outs for this episode. You know, a lot of different stuff to check out. A lot of really thoughtful, informative stuff to check out. And yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed, you know, this episode. And this episode also, you know, gave you a lot of things to think about. And, you know, in our discussion of Boys Run the Riot. And yeah, I, I just, again, we love doing these podcasts with localization teams. They're always just so informative and interesting. And it's just really cool to just learn behind the scenes about the work that people who make reading these series possible. Uh, you know what their talks on the work are and like the thought they put into with so much care trying to communicating the author's intent in english as best as possible so really really again appreciate the hard work that tj leo and ashley did on boys from the riot as uh, we do with all the great localizers working in the industry who do such great work on the manga they localize but yeah i mean again we'll have more discussions like that coming up in the future more discussions of other queer manga coming up in the future so definitely look forward to that but uh we'll leave you with those things to look forward to and head into our wrap-up uh where you can follow us to find out when those things will come out for sure. Once again, thank you to everybody who listened to this episode. Really hope you enjoyed it. Um, but until next time, we can go ahead and uh, plug everything as far as the show goes and the rest of our stuff goes. Uh, starting with my good friend Lum, where can the good people find you? You can find me at Lamariasha on Twitter and wherever 
There's one more show that you can find me that includes Letterbox, Animation and Revelation, Annie List, and places like that. You can also read my manga reviews on mangawrites.com. We got a lot of books coming in, a lot of reviews planned to go out. Look forward to more in there. That's also you can find the other podcast I do, Love Squad, the Yoshi Atsu Focus podcast I do with good friend Andrew AC, Yoshimaru, we discuss the wonderful wacky world, Aruka Hagashi's Yurisei Yatsura, the classic, influential sci-fi rom-com, and you know, it's been just a blast to cover the manga as being released by Viz Media and the movies as being released by Discotech on streaming on Crunchyroll. And we're so excited to have a new anime, the Eurosounds are all-star reboot anime to talk about later this year. And we have so many plans for the show, so much we want to talk about on the show, and we're really, really looking forward to it. But yeah, you know, if you want to listen to some classic mom discussion, definitely check us out. You can follow us on Twitter at Lum underscore squad. And on YouTube, you can search for our channel name uh, just by tapping Lum Squad in the search bar. And we're also on every podcast platform you can think of. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Anchor. We also cross-post episodes in the Manga Rats feed and post episodes early, oftentimes a long time early, on the Manga Rats Patreon. So look forward to a lot of episodes on there. And if you like the art I make, the illustrations and thumbnails I do for the show, and just the animations illustrations I do in general, you can find that stuff on my Instagram, at setartworks. All right, but as for me, I'm Colton. You can find me on Twitter, at SniperKing323. I also host and produce a lot of other podcasts besides this one that you can find links to over at my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. You can click on the podcast page over there and basically take a look at literally everything I'm a part of right now, even past projects I'm not involved in anymore, but still want to link anyway, uh, as well as a lot of other guest spots I've done on other podcasts over the years. So if you want to find literally anything and everything that I've been a part of or am a part of podcast-wise, again, go to coltoncorner.wordpress.com and uh, check out all my stuff. Uh, but as for Manga Mavericks and everything we're doing, uh, I mean, first off, you can find every episode of Manga Mavericks at mangamavericks.com. That's where we post every episode first. Unless you're a patron of ours at patreon.com slash manga mavericks, where at the $2 tier, you will have access to select episodes of the podcast, depending on uh, when we have them edited. Basically, if we have an episode of the podcast edited and it's not ready to go up on the main feed just yet, uh, we will put it up on the Patreon first at the $2 tier exclusively. Um, but admittedly, that also depends on uh, what we have done at any given time. So that's why we put up select episodes. But basically, if you want more reliable content, you want to sign up for our $5 tier, uh, where we post a new bonus podcast exclusively on the Patreon at the end of every month. Uh, right now, our latest bonus podcast is the second episode of our Manga Mavericks Book Club read-through of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Part 2 Battle Tendency that I'm doing with my friend Grant at Grant the Thief on Twitter. You know, we, we did a whole read-through of Phantom Blood a couple years back, and we decided it was about time to cover more JoJo's, and uh, we're covering Part 2 right now, like I just said, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. I'm really, really enjoying doing that over there, and uh, I really hope to keep doing more JoJo's afterwards and not take a whole two years in between parts, but but uh, we'll see how that goes. But yeah, I've been having a lot of fun with that. And uh, if you want to uh, sign up for the Patreon and uh, listen to that episode and then keep up with the rest of our read through. Uh, once again, that's at the $5 tier at patreon.com slash Uh, You know, signing up for our Patreon really is the best way for you guys to support our show and everything we do here. Uh, because everything we make on Patreon goes back to, you know, keeping the website up, keeping the podcast up. It really helps us keep the lights on in general. Um, And so yeah, again, that's at patreon.com slash Uh, Please sign up uh, if you so wish. 
Uh, but as for everything else, you can follow us on Twitter at manga underscore Mavericks or on Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash manga Mavericks, where we post different excerpts of the podcast and including some exclusive content every once in a while. Again, that's at youtube.com slash manga Mavericks. Please subscribe to us. Uh, email us anything at manga Mavericks at gmail.com. Um, you know, what do you think about Boys Run the Riot? How much has Kazuki Takahashi affected your lives with this work? You know, uh, what are you reading right now? Is there anything you're reading that you want us to talk about on the show, maybe? Uh, you know, email us about, you know, anything manga-related, podcast-related, or really anything. We love getting emails from you guys. And if you send us an email, we'll read it on the show. Uh, once again, that's at mangamavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on a bunch of different platforms at this point, uh, but especially on Apple Podcasts and even Spotify. If you leave us a rating and a review, it really helps the visibility of our show on all those platforms. And uh, just in general, we love getting feedback from you guys, whether it be positive or negative, because we want to use that feedback to make the show as good as possible. Um, but that's going to be about it for this episode. Once again, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of Mind mavericks this has been episode 207 and we'll see you guys next time for episode 208 bye guys sayonara